On this week's episode of the Shut Up and Build Bikes podcast, I share my interview with Aaron Stinner in beautiful Santa Barbara, California. Each week on the Shut Up and Build Bikes podcast, I get on the phone and I talk to somebody in the bike frame building world. I try to help them tell their story. I record it and I share it with all of you so that hopefully we can all learn from each other and you know, get to know each other a little bit better. And I have a lot of fun doing this every week. And this week, my guest is Aaron Stinner. He's been building bike frames for probably over 10 years in Santa Barbara, California. Sounds lovely. I'd love to visit. So we tell his story, or you know, try to help him tell his story here, where he's you know built his his company up quite a bit. He had, I think at one point he had something like seven employees. He said, and then he's tapered it off more and kind of mellowed it out some. And and I think more recently it's kind of in a growth phase again. And I I love the discussion about the bikes and the craft. I also like to discuss with people about you know business and how how to make this whole thing work. And so we talked about that quite a bit, and I really enjoyed my discussion with Aaron, and I, I hope you enjoy it just as much as I did. Yeah, so I've been involved in bikes, I mean, my uh, classic answer, right, my whole life, you know, started riding bikes as a little kid and all that all that fun stuff. Um, I, I didn't really get into, uh, like, the cycling industry, I guess you could say, until I was... 14 uh, years old. Um, I had been like mountain biking. I grew up in kind of all over California, but uh, when I got more serious into it, I was living up in Santa Rosa, California. There's quite a few infamous builders from up in that area. Um, but I was, you know, my house was really close to Annandale State Park. And so I grew up mountain biking out there and having a lot of fun doing that stuff. And then there's a local bike shop out there that was starting like a junior development team for like bike racing. And it was pretty junior cycling at that point in time, not that it was new, but it was still really small, like not nearly as big as it is now. You know, this little shop was just starting out a team. There's like a couple of us. And so I, I went and you had to like try out, you basically had to ride this ergo bike for, you know, half an hour and they kind of like tested you. And needless to say, like, you know, I don't think they, I don't think they really had any, um, they kind of let anybody on to the team. So I don't think I had any mm -hmm. kind of like performance things going on. But anyway, so I, I, I started there and I got on the team and I started racing at like local, like Northern California bike races. And that was like kind of my first toe in the water. You know, I got to know a lot of people at different races and um, every year for the team, you know, I did that till I was in Santa Rosa. I did it until I was about, 15, 16 years old. And then I moved to Southern California, but I, I grew up racing as a junior, you know, through USA cycling and all through, you know, Norba and doing all this other stuff, basically through my teenage years. And every year we would have to do like, you know, we'd go to Interbike and we'd have to scout our sponsors and we'd have to do all that kind of stuff. And, um, that was like my first, my first introduction to, to the cycling industry as a whole was racing my bike and, and, uh, hunting down, hunting down sponsors and getting to know, getting to know the industry that way. When I was 16, 15, 16 years old, I got my first job in a bike shop. So I was wrenching, um, on the weekends, 
when I wasn't racing, mm-hmm. um, you know, basically to my, you know, my parents, we didn't have a ton of money growing up. So it was like, you know, you got to earn your tires. And I, I worked for tires and tubes basically when I started uh, at the bike shop that I was working at, like they just give me store credit and I would get to work on my bike and I'd get cables and housing and I'd get you know, tires and tubes and that kind of stuff. Um, so I did that through high school, raised my bike, worked at the shop and, you know, other than going to school, my life was basically bicycles. Um, and when I, so then I decided when I, once I graduated from high school, I decided to go to college. Um, I ended up sticking around, uh, Santa Barbara. Um, we, I moved to Santa Barbara halfway through high school. Um, mm-hmm. and stayed, went, went to UCSD and I decided to major in biopsychology, which was basically their pre-med program. Um, I wanted to, I really wanted to go into like sports medicine. So I wanted to work with athletes at the time, you know, I was racing my bike a ton and training and I raced, uh, I raced club, I raced on the club team through college and, uh, I was racing for like a local amateur team at the same time. Um, but like a lot of my focus at that point in time was on, on, on racing. And, you know, I was still wrenching a ton. I was still working at the bike shop, still making money doing that. Um, but my focus was on more on like the athletic performance side of things. Yeah. So I did that through college. And then when I graduated college, uh, I graduated in 2008, 2008, 2009, I ended up sticking around for like an extra quarter or two to finish up some classes. And then it was like, it was pretty much the, it was either like going to grad school and continuing to pursue like kind of like athletic performance stuff or, you know, take, take some time off. And I was pretty burnt out on school by that point in time. It was also because I was like balancing racing and doing all this other stuff at the same time. And I, I decided to take a year off of school. I just needed some time and the job market was pretty crappy back in 2008, um, 2009. And I, the bike shop I had been working at locally, you know, through late high school, through college, they needed a manager at that point in time. So I ended up coming on as a manager and I managed the shop and we were, they were kind of going through some growth stuff. Like, um, the CEO of Trek, uh, John Burke had just moved to town. So he had bought a house here in town and they were kind of like the shop was in this transition into becoming a bigger shop. And, I kind of caught it like right in the middle. Um, but I was, I grew up, we, we, I got to start a fit program at the shop. So I got really into fitting. Um, and that was, you know, obviously I had the experience from being in college, the experience from racing my bike. And so, you know, I had proposed to our shop owner, you know, I was like, Hey, you know, I think we can, we can start a fit program and and be pretty successful with it. Yeah. So we kicked it off and like for like a year and a half, I just, I spent a lot of time managing the shop and then also just growing this fit program. And I got really lucky in that I had a lot of connections from racing bikes and doing all this stuff. So I had like lots of athletes coming through. We were fitting tons of people and I had a lot of fun, like growing that program. Like, you know, it's, it's really similar in how you like almost how you meet a client for like building a frame, you know, and, and you get to like intake their information and you ask them questions about their riding style you know, you get, you get a feel for who they are, you know, we're fitting athletes that are 20 years old, super fast, super fit. And then we're fitting, 
75 year old guys that are riding, you know, 20 miles a week kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, so you get like this good, I got this really cool kind of, uh, experience with like a good wide range of you know people that ride bikes, you know, everywhere from we fit, we did this like one program where we were fitting just commuters, like people that were commuting by bike, like we were trying to get them, it was like a discounted fit, but we were trying to get them set up on their bike to just be a little bit more comfortable, you know? Um, so it was a lot of fun. I I did that and, uh, and that kind of bled into, I, I ended up going, so while I was doing the fit program, I was like, you know, I'm like dealing with this like bike, I'm always like, you know, I'm fitting athletes around like this bicycle frame that is like has angles and shapes and like all these other things for a reason. And like, obviously I I knew what geometry was and I knew all the geometry tables of like all these, you know, bikes that we're fitting people on. But like, for the most part, I didn't really have huge in-depth knowledge of like why the bicycle was built the way it is. Like, you know, it seemed like everything was pretty pretty much the same for the most part, you know, like there's a box and kind of all the major manufacturers stay in that box. And like, why is that? that? Um, and I grew up and I grew up when I was young, like I was, my grandfather was like a huge, a huge person in my life. And he, he was an engineer. Um, and so, you know, I grew up tinkering and messing with stuff and welding and cutting like from an early age. So Anyway, I I found UBI and I saw they were offering a frame building class. So I went up to UBI and it was more of like take a vacation from the shop. I had been working for like a year and a half nonstop, starting this program, doing all this stuff. So I just needed some time away from the shop and um, go, you know, go visit Ashland. And so I went and did that and, you know, learned a ton. I did their two week uh, Philip Braze class and came back to Santa Barbara and, you know, kept working at the shop. Um, but in the meantime, I was kind of like plugging away at like getting some tooling to kind of like keep making bikes. Um, and I got, I ended up, well, first I needed like, well, I, I came back and, um, you know, because I worked at the shop and people knew they were like, Oh, you can build a frame. So I started getting these people that just kept asking me like, Hey, will you build my frame? Or, Hey, can you repair this? Like, um, and, and at first I wasn't really like, I wasn't, my plan was never to really to become a frame builder, like doing the frame building class was more of a like exercise in education than it was like a, um, frame, you know, wanting to, to do that. Yeah. Um, but as like, as people started like asking me to like, you know, and I, I did a few things, like I did a few repairs. I did like this, that, and the other, that kind of came through the shop. Um, and I, I kind of had enough inquiries where it was like worth like kind of maybe pursuing doing more of it. Um, and I knew I didn't want to like manage a bike shop for the rest of my life. Like that wasn't, yeah. that wasn't the plan. Um, <laughs> yeah. And, and so I, I, you know, Santa Barbara, like at this point in time, like I wasn't making much money. I was living in, um, like literally living in a, a walk-in closet in my buddy's apartment. Um, Santa Barbara is like pretty expensive place to live and high cost of living. Yeah. No um, <laughs> so like I was renting a, I was renting a walk-in closet for 400 bucks a month. That's like, can give you like a kind of like an indication of like cost of living. Yeah. Um, like a decade ago. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. A decade ago. So I was doing that and, uh, and so I needed, like I was, I was brazing like in the shop, at, at like the shop I was managing, like after hours, like I had just like, 
the mini oxyacetylene torch kit you can get like i think it was like home depot or something like that or like i can't even remember where i got it uh, maybe i got it on craigslist but it was like this just like basic you know thing and i was like open up all the doors after hours and just like braze away on these old frames like you know fixing cracks or uh you know replacing dropouts and doing like all this like piddly stuff that would take like hours to do too you know because i like didn't have a ton of frame building experience, but like most of the people, like I told people like, Hey, I'll repair it. But like, uh, you know, just so you know, like my experience is, you know, I, it's in like the tens of hours, not the hundreds of hours. People didn't care, you know, like nowhere, they couldn't go anywhere else to get their stuff prepared. So it was like, you know, trust this kid to like replace your dropout or, you know, you know, basically the frames going to the graveyard. So, uh, so I was doing all that and I needed, I needed shop space and, you know, Santa Barbara, like you pay almost, you know, we're in a great shop now, but, uh, you know, you end up paying like somewhere between a buck 50 to $2 a square foot, um, you know, per month. Um, that's not obviously annually. So like, you know, you're, it's expensive and, and I didn't have any money. So I ended up the, I kind of wanted to pursue this thing. I wanted to do some more repair work. I wanted to do a little bit of frame building, build another frame for myself. Um, So I ended up finding a house to rent. Uh, It actually like happened to be like my parents had, uh, my parents had been looking for a rental property in town. Um, You know, again, I don't, I never, I did not grow up with money. My parents don't have a ton of money, but they were like, you know, they're frugal and they, they save. And so, they had been looking for a rental property. They, they had, this had kind of all coalesced at the same point in time. They found a property that made a lot of sense. It needed some work. Um, but you know, the rent kind of worked out. So it was three bedroom. It's a three bedroom house with a garage and I rented out every bedroom and I lived in the garage and like started collecting my tools and, um, kind of putting together some resemblance of like a, you know, little frame building shop. Um, so this was like kind of towards the end of 2010. Mm-hmm. Um, and I could rent out all the rooms and basically pay like no rent. Um, so I was basically like a slumlord. Um, and, uh, but I, I had friends in town and I rented all the rooms out to mostly friends or bike racers that were like coming through town or staying for the winter or whatever. Mm-hmm. And I, uh, I just grew out my, you know, a two car garage and just kind of grew it out into a frame building shop. And I did that from like 2010 to like 2012 I just like started collecting tooling and like piece by piece I was working at the shop full time like in 2010 and then I slowly tapered off like as I got more work uh moonlighting and like doing frame repair stuff and uh, I was ranching on bikes in the evening out of my garage um I slowly turned off the bike shop like I went from like managing it to like working part-time um and so like 2010, I think I built one more bike frame. I got a fi- I got an anvil fixture like halfway through 2010. That was like the most money I had ever spent on anything in my life. Um, and uh, bought a fixture and then I was like cutting everything by hand, like still using like the bike CAD, like, you know, paper miter templates. Yep. And, uh, so I did that. I was doing that. And then I was like, you know, collect the, you know, got the chain saved. At that point in time, like Don was the only one building, building fixtures, really. I mean, there was like old Henry James fixtures. Like I had done one frame on a borrowed uh, Henry James, like flat plate fixture. Um, 
I thought about making my own fixture for a while, but I kind of was like busy enough with like enough stuff going on that I was like, if I just work a little bit more, like I could probably get the cash to like buy something from somebody who maybe knows what they're doing as far as like building a fixture. Um, so yeah, so I kind of just started cobbling things together. Um, built that two bikes in 2010. I think I built like maybe like nine bikes in 2011. So it was like for friends, I built like a couple more for myself. Um, a good buddy of mine, like a really good BMX rider. I built him a couple bikes and just told him to like, go like smash them and go see if he could break them. Um, which he did. Um, <laughs> and, uh, and then in like late 2011, early 2012, like I was, starting to get a feel for like what the business would look like, like getting, you know, like trying to do it full time. Um, so I kind of like, was like, ah, oh, this is a lot of fun. This is really cool. Like I kind of liked the idea that I could kind of like, you know, live out of my garage and just like do my own thing and, and make bikes and probably eke out as much money as I was making up at the bike shop. So I kind of like decided to make a push into like building more bikes. Um, and yeah, so going into 2012, um, I decided to go to NABS, um, and kind of decided at the last minute and, uh, a buddy of mine, um, Chris Ellison, who owns Flux Customs out in Denver, yeah. um, Chris and I went to college together. So he and I raced bikes together in college and, uh, he called me up like the beginning of 2012 and we were chatting about stuff. And I was like, yeah, I'm going to this maps thing. And he's like, Oh no way, man. That's so awesome. And he's super into handmade. He was like super into the handmade circle at the time. And, um, he was like, Hey, build, build me a frame. I was like, okay, well, I, you know, here are some ideas that I had for, for the show bike. And he was like, he's like, all right, well, I'll pay you for like, you know, materials. And, um, and he knew Noah up at a uh, Velo color at the time. Okay. Um, him yeah. and Noah were, 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 but were buddies. And so he was like, Noah will paint it. Like, you know, he'll paint it for us. And you just build it. And I was like, all right, cool. This sounds awesome. Like, you know, not making any money on it, but like, who cares, you know? Um, so I built like, a, I, it was a 29er. It's funny, you know, cause like most people are like, oh yeah, you build road bikes and gravel bikes, right? Like mostly like you don't do mountain bikes. And like in the beginning, like most of what I built was mountain bikes. Um, I built a few road bikes for myself, but that was just cause I grew up racing on the road a lot. Um, and I commuted by, you know, commuted on my road bike. And, um, so I took a 29er to NABS. Um, I built a 29er, um, like I did like the full thing. It was like Philip Bray's bilaminate. Um, I designed the dropouts. Like I, you know, got a CNC shop to cut them for me. Like I went full gas on the whole thing and it was a lot of fun, but it was a ton of work. Mm-hmm. Um, but it all, it did kind of end up paying off. Like I went to NABS, I got, uh, you know, they have like some awards there and I got like the rookie of the year award for being at NABS. Um, and, uh, not to like, not to talk badly about NABS cause I do think it's a great, I think it's a great show. Um, but it was like still kind of when it was like, feel like it was a little bit more relevant and it was like also Mm -hmm. like the only show it was like the only show going on um so i got the rookie of the year thing and then like once i got once i got that like i came back and like i had already set up like a website and stuff but once i came back like i just started getting a lot of orders um 
and like then people didn't just know me locally like people knew me outside of the of the like little sphere that I was living in um something that's kind of interesting to me about that is like I didn't really have any sense of marketing when I was getting started and I wasn't in, I never lived in an area where people rode bikes, like, like they rode bikes for sure. And there were bike shops, but, uh, there was, it was never like a, like a great place for cycling where like lots of people lived and, and there were like excellent shops and, and widely attended race series and stuff. And, you know, cycling culture just wasn't that big in the places that I lived. And so anyway, uh, and then when I finally started going to trade shows again, like I didn't go full gas on the the bikes that I brought. They were like, you kind of had to use your imagination a little bit to like, see what it might look like. Like I would have a single color powder coat and I always liked bikes that were like pretty plain. Like, a, a, you know, I want to do it well, but like kind of plain and maybe not the most baller parts kit. And yeah, people didn't respond that well to mine and I don't blame anybody for that. It's, it's funny to imagine like, you know, how things could play out differently, you know, for like new builders, especially who are trying to get the ball rolling. It's kind of tough because the, the cost to build each new bike can be pretty huge. And, um, like, how do you get any experience if you just have to keep building bikes that nobody's paying for? On the other hand, it's hard to get people to pay for them if you're not like showing people. And so it's really, I'm like very happy for you. And that's awesome situation that like at, at some point after you had been putting in some work, the ball sort of started rolling. And that's a question that I get sometimes from other builders is like how to make that happen. And I don't always know what to tell them because like, you know, times change. I don't know that you could show up to a trade show and just have like an awesome offering and that people would always respond in the same way. Maybe there's a time when people were more hungry for that or, or maybe you really nailed it or I don't know what the secret sauce is. Yeah. You know, to be honest, and I tell people this all of the time, like I think that a lot of people were surprised. I mean, I've gotten this response before where I've talked to people about like, Oh, they're like, Oh, well you just kind of like, uh, I mean, I've talked to like Curtis about Curtis at, at, at RetroTech, you know, and like yep. when I first, when he and I first got to like go for it, this was like years ago, but when he and I first got to like go ride together, I was like, I kind of gave him my whole story of like where, and he realized like all of a sudden we realized we had a bunch of mutual connections from like way younger than that. Like I got started in the industry like at 15. So like by the time I was 24 and I was going to NABs, like, I, like for me to set up a QVP account wasn't a problem, you know, yeah. like I already knew everybody. Like I knew, I knew our inside rep. I knew like, you know, multiple inside people cause I had been managing a shop for so long. Yep. Um, and then like on the other end of it, like, you know, if I wanted like a SRAM OE account, like I knew like six people at the time that were working at SRAM. So it was like, I, just because I had, been, I'd been sponsored by them. I had raced for them. Like, yeah. It was a lot easier. Like my, my doors, a lot of my doors were already open, like industry side of things. I just needed to like piece it together. Like the frame building side was like more or less where I was like truly learning was just on the frame building side. Like I didn't have to do, like, I don't know how guys do it. Um, you know, I obviously like there's been guys even, you know, we can get more into this as we talk more, but there's been guys that have worked at our, at my shop at dinner and like now are frame builders and uh, you know, they, you know, I, I try to give them the same advice. Like, you know, a lot of it is like, you know, it's really, I, I think I just got lucky that the frame building was like an afterthought and I had already been in the industry for a really long time and knew a lot of people. And especially like 
when you're a young kid in the industry, everybody just thinks you're like cute and like wants to help you out, you know, kind of thing. <laughs> um, and like, and then, you know, obviously then you grow up and you're like an adult, but like, you know, when I was like 16 years old, you know, I was like the kid at like the interbike table, you know, everybody's drunk at interbike. You're, you know, <laughs> you're sober and you're running around being like, Hey man, will you give me free socks for the year? You know, kind of thing. So like, um, you know, I, I had a lot of those, those relationships going. So the step into the frame building was really just introducing myself to the frame building world and not necessarily to like this cycling industry. Um, so I had a lot, I was like, I was lucky in that sense. Right. I mean, I had, uh, you know, I had eight years of, of being in the industry already. Um, that was really helpful. Um, so, you know, like parts kits and like all that stuff, like it was just, if for my first showing at NABS, I was just lucky in that I had the connections to make that happen. Cause I didn't have the money either. Um, you know, yeah. I was like, I don't really know the, I, like, I wouldn't, it, the, the frame building game is so different now than it was then, you know? Yeah. Um, uh, when sometimes people ask how to get started and it's like, I don't think any of us have very good advice because it's not really <laughs> a practical or particularly viable, like, career path you know you could do on the <laughs> right, job yeah. training in this trade or you could go to college and you know take on student debt but then you know ho hopefully it's something that you can actually get a you know gainful employment afterward or there, there's like different paths and i feel like for frame building you basically m most people who have done it well to some degree of success are very stubborn people who their innate skill set and talent lends itself well to this sort of work and they probably got really lucky or had some sort of advantage along the way that didn't provide their success but their success would have been harder without it you know like uh you know access to this this thing that from their parents or like this job connection that put them in you know connection with somebody else or it's like if you just want to stumble into it and have success I wouldn't know how to tell someone how to do that. I think like you need to want it bad enough that you're willing to like put up with a lot of BS because it's a really difficult path. The reason that you see as many people doing it as you do is just because it's like a really satisfying thing to make a bicycle. And that part of it, I can see why people would want to do it. But like, yeah, hundred percent. Like it's, uh, you know, it's, uh, it's really difficult and I don't, I don't have the, like you said, I don't have the recipe on how to, how to make it happen. You know, I, we get a lot of guys, you know, when we do hire for help at the shop, like, you know, I, I try to find guys that have some bike shop experience, you know, or some, some level of bike knowledge. Like it's just helpful. You got to start somewhere, you know? Yep. Um, I think like, not that working in a bike shop is like a good example of like what, you know, what the frame building world is like, but you, you got to kind of like get a feel for the industry as a whole, because I think the other thing too with frame building is like what a lot of people don't realize too, is like, you know, I think we all start when we start, we really like the idea of like working with our hands and like making things and like the satisfaction of like starting with raw material and creating something. Um, at least that's what keeps me around doing it, but you still have to partake in the cycling industry. Like you still have to take partake in the industry itself and the industry itself is like, you know, whether you're a frame builder or your bike shop owner, or like, you know, you're starting a, you know, whatever clothing company, like it's all hard. Like the cycling industry as a whole is a tough industry. Yeah. Um, the barrier of entry is really low across the board. Like, you know, anybody can, you know, go start a clothing company tomorrow and, and 
you know, anybody can start a component company, you know, basically, you know, you just got to get the, you know, the Taipei show book and like start making phone calls, you know? So the competition is really high and, and like, you got to be able to kind of like navigate that. I think a little bit, like it, you can get really bummed out if you don't know what that looks like, because as you grow your like little frame building shot, you know, whether you keep it small and you stay in your garage or you grow it to be a little bigger or you get really, really big, like, you still have to, you got to find your, your little corner in that big room. If you don't really know what that looks like, it can be a little daunting, you know, when you figure it out, like, you know, you're like, I've been building bikes for five years. And now I just realized that like, you know, the industry isn't what I thought it was, you know, and that's, yeah. that can be a bummer. Um, yeah. So it's, it's a tough, it's a tough one. Cause I think most of us who've been in the industry for very long, uh, I mean, hopefully we're not jaded on bicycles, you know, but it's very right, easy right. to get jaded on the bicycle industry. And it's not yeah. always so much that there's like any one person that you want to blame, but it's just like, and you probably feel similar in a lot of industries, I guess, but it's, you know, you just, there's a lot of stuff that gets old. And so, yeah, it's like, totally. that's an interesting point to think that, you know, you can't be part of the bike industry without continuing to be part of the bike industry. Yeah. I mean, and some guys, I think some guys, yeah, I, I don't think it's, I think it's really hard to do. I mean, you know, we live in a really creative, it's, it always amazes me all the cool creative people that work in our space, you know, and um, some people find some creative ways to like make their living and, and build cool stuff and kind of, you know, but I, I do think the participation in the industry as a whole, like if you want to make money, you got to kind of, you got to kind of play ball. Or if you don't have to make money, then you're lucky and you get to just build cool, <laughs> cool stuff and like not worry about it. Yeah, um, I see sort of like a, a split between the bigger your business is and the more legitimate it is. You know, you might have the capacity to do a lot of like volume or something and that that could make you a lot more money if things really were working smoothly and... And on the other side, you could just, and you see this a lot with frame builders where they move it in the other direction. They, they make everything as small and as tiny as possible so that they can fit it mm -hmm. in their garage or their basement with like as close to literally zero overhead as possible so that <laughs> no one can really have any expectations of them. It's really attractive to like not have to do, not have to be responsible to many other people to not have to stress about, you know, as many things like I totally understand uh, like Tom LaMarche brought up the other week that I keep saying this, the tin shack Alliance. I think that's hilarious, but like, <laughs> but like that is, I mean, that is a, a very romantic dream. Like I, uh, that sounds really nice. You know, just having all your stuff and making your own things and being the least amount accountable to other people as possible. Like I totally understand that. Yeah. And I think, you know, as bike, bike, you know, bike enthusiasts, you know, a lot of us, like we enjoy the endeavor of like, first we're all mass, not all of us, but a lot of us are into the, you know, we're a bit masochist, right. Because we like enjoy the pain and suffering of riding our bike. But, um, you know, it's also a very, like, it's a team sport, but it's also a very individual activity, you know, like, and so you attract a lot of people that are kind of have a little bit of that mindset. And I think a lot of us kind of like, I mean, I, I, I don't care how big your, big your shop is or whatever. There's always going to be a romantic side of just like, you know, being in your little shop in the woods, like making bikes. And, uh, yeah. cause I, I think at the core, at the core core, 
like it, we're all a little bit like that, you know, like to a degree. Yeah. Yeah. And, and w- one thing for me, not to make this about, sorry, I'm like always, <laughs> always making asides on this show. Like, no, it's, no. like it's about me, no, uh, it's good. but I'll finish the thought here. <laughs> I, you know, I bought CNC machines for myself because I just thought it would be so cool to like have these machines. And I figured I'd go back to work again soon. And it was just a little break from being a working stiff. And then I figured I'd make right. a frame building tool or two just because, you know, like that's something that I know how to do. I had an idea or two and then it was working and I was like, well, I'm not going back to work as long as I can help it. And and, and in order to yeah. do that, I had to get really serious about the work and I had to focus on things that would build towards, you know, things that were scalable products that people would repeat purchase. You know, you figure it out once and then you just hit the re- repeat button. You know, that's what the CNC process right. is good for. And so in the years that I've had CNC machines, I like to think the stuff that I make is cool, but I actually don't spend very much time at all just making cool stuff for the fun of it. I feel like that's a luxury that maybe I could afford it if I reordered my life a little bit, but like on the path that I'm on, it hasn't afforded me a whole lot of time to actually play in the shop. And usually I'm fine with that because I I do like what I do and I'm happy with the things that I've made. But there are times where I just like, I look at my beautiful CNC machine and my lathe and my TIG welder. And I just think like, when the hell am I actually going to make some fun stuff for me. Like I want to make a little, uh, <laughs> a dog tag for my dog. That's like CNC machine bronze. And like, you know, just all sorts of little things like that, that have no scalability and no, like no potential right. for revenue really w- without starting a whole new business and marketing that, which I'm not going to do. And so it's just, anyway, I look forward to that, you know, those times in the future when, when I'm like a little more settled and it, maybe that's an illusion. Maybe that's a mirage. I don't know. <laughs> no, I think you'll get there. I think we all like dream of like, uh, and you know, I, I can tie this into like progression at dinner too, but like we all dream of like, you know, the prototype shop of like just being able to tinker and like do our thing. Like I still, I still dream of yeah. dream of that and I've been doing it for a long time, but, uh, yeah, carving the time away is, is hard, especially once you get the business like up, once it's a business quote unquote like i think we can talk more about that like i think there's guys that choose to pursue it as a business and then there's a lot of guys that choose to create it as like as a job um which you know the tin shack alliance probably is like guys that are trying to like they're making enough like they're building frames they're making enough money the stress is low and uh you know for the most part and um you know the idea of scaling or growing it is like not really in there either either in their DNA or in their mind like they just don't want to do it yeah um and that's kind of where I got where I got like to this point where uh so at 2012 like you know got rookie of the year came back you know and I say I got a ton of orders like at that point in time it's like I think I came back and like I had like over the next two months I got like five or six emails of guys that wanted bikes and I was able to sell them on getting bikes Yep. which, you know, like having five or six bikes in the backlog at that time was like huge for me. So I was like, two months later, I went into the bike shop and I was like, I'm done, you know, like, uh, I cut all my hours and I was like, um, I, between the frame building work and then like, I was wrenching, I was moonlighting, doing a lot of wrenching work. Um, I was like, I can do this. So, uh, I did that and jumped full, you know, both feet in and, and haven't looked back. I mean, I haven't been employed since. Um, so, I did that, or I guess I should say I haven't uh, been employed by somebody else since. Um, But uh, yeah, so I just started going full gas with it. And uh, I, you know, spent more time on the website and getting my name out there, kind of like 
um, leveraged the contacts that I had and kind of did some networking. And at that point in time, it was like fully custom, you know, like whatever you want. I kind of had like, you know, on the website, it's like road gravel or at that, that time it was CX gravel didn't even <laughs> like, wasn't even a term. Um, yeah. yep. I built like road bikes, cro- road bikes, cross bikes and mountain bikes. And, uh, I had put together like a little cyclocross team with like me and like two other buddies. And we were like doing the Southern California cross stuff. And, um, that was kind of my way of marketing. Um, and so 2012, like probably built like, I don't know, like 20, I got to look back at my numbers and I don't have in front of me, but maybe like 25 bikes. Um, and then in 2013, I probably did like maybe like 35 or 40. Um, and in 2013, I decided to try to bring, um, finish. I was, so I was still in my garage at home. And uh, I was getting busy, like a lot easier, obviously building more frames every year. Um, and at that point in time, like doing 35 to 40 bikes a year was like, for me, it was a lot of work, you know, like I was busy, busy. Um, and I was struggling on the finishing and like getting frames finished. Like uh, Santa Barbara is a high cost of living area. So like our industrial corner of our town is tiny because you just can't afford to do any kind of industrial work here. Um, Mm -hmm. so like your powder coat options are limited. Um, and at that point in time I was powder coating most of my frames and like doing decals. And then if somebody wanted to pay for like a liquid paint job, like I'd send it to spectrum at that time. Um, and, uh, spectrum was like one of back then was like one of the few, players in the game that could kind of do some volume. Like obviously there's like Joe Bell, like all these other guys that were like, um, you know, infamous painters, but, uh, for like, you know, especially when you're starting, like you're selling your frames for so little, like looking back on it, I was like, what was I thinking? Um, but really I was just trying to like, get, I was trying to get the ball rolling, you know? And like, and I do think there's like, you can go on the forums and back then the forums, I don't even know what exists now, but a lot of old builders like used to go out there and like tout how like, ah, oh, young builders don't charge enough and undermining the industry and all these other things. And at that point in time though, like, you know, you're selling a bike based on your experience level. So it's like, if you're selling a frame for a thousand bucks. You're doing it because you don't have a ton of experience. Um, and hopefully, you know, the person buying it from you has that and understands that like, Hey, I've only been building for two or three years. I haven't been building for 20 years. Um, yeah, you're buying you, the reason this bike is half the price of other guys is because of, you know, I don't have, I don't have all those hours in. Um, so I, I was struggling on the finishing end and struggling finding a shop that could finish kind of like quick enough that I, like I could have predictable shift dates and, uh, and also finished at the quality that I wanted. It was like getting to the point where like, I wanted to charge more for my bikes because I didn't feel like I was charging enough. And like, I felt like finish a lot for a lot of the clients I was getting finish was like a really important part of it. You know, like they wanted to pick their colors and their decal colors. And like, I was almost spending more time talking about paint with a lot of customers than I was about like the actual bikes. I'd be like, Oh, like, you know, I want a road bike. I'm a 56 and you know, but now let's talk about paint. So that it was interesting that like at that early 
stage, like a lot of the finish side was almost like, a, like, a, like, Oh wow. This is as you know, people are more interested in the color of their bike sometimes than, uh, yeah. Whether the bike actually fits them. Um, so I actually tried to bring, I actually tried to, uh, how like started, try, I built a shed on the side of my house and I was like trying to powder coat and paint like on the side of my house. Um, and, uh, I was also looking back on it. I was like, terrible idea. But uh, I learned I learned a ton doing it. Like, I bought a small oven, and uh, I set up, like, it was, like, probably a 10 by 20, like, pad on the side of my house where I was able to paint. Um, and uh, it didn't go well, and the, the frame <laughs> didn't turn out great. Mark, Mark, at, Mark at, who used to own Spectrum, was, like, super helpful at that point in time. Like, he kind of gave me some pointers and, like, was trying to help me along, but, uh, I, uh, I quickly realized I am not a painter and I'm definitely a frame builder. Um, so I, I tried to make that happen cause I was like, I'm getting more orders. I need to be able to turn these bikes out faster. And that's like when it really all started kind of clicking for me, I was like, there's like, you know, these parts of the industry that aren't working, the frame builder, like I was starting to get frustrated with a lot of the frame building side. Cause I was like, you know, things aren't getting turned around quick enough. Like it seems like everybody kind of wants to keep this all at like a hobby level, but I'm trying to like build this business. And, um, yeah. so I kind of went into 2014 and like, again, because I've been in the industry a long time, I've just known a lot of people and, uh, it was helpful that a lot of people, you know, heard about what I was doing and kind of spread the word. So 2014, I literally almost like, doubled the amount of orders that I got in 2013. And this was all kind of naturally mm -hmm. um, other than like doing a little, like Instagram started in like 2012 or whatever, 2013. It's like I was, I kind of caught the beginning of that and like people kind of found out what I was doing and I was building. And um, so I got a lot of orders in 2014, like way more than I could handle. And uh, uh, probably like in May or June, um, the late uh, and great John Jones, who uh, is was a wheel builder here in town. Um, he actually just recently passed. Um, I'm talking about him a lot. If we keep talking about what I'm, you know, where I'm going with the story, mm -hmm. but uh, John actually recently passed passed away uh, unexpectedly, and it was like it's pretty pretty tragic. We lost a great um, great guy in the industry, and I don't know if you know him or know of his story, but uh, he. Uh, he was a great guy. So yeah, anyway, he and I, had, I, he and I had talked a few times online and I never knew his story that well, but uh, yeah, it was cool to see the work that he was doing and some of the conversations that we had had were, he was enthusiastic to, to see me building what I was doing, which I mean, you know, just means a lot to me that anybody even cares. And uh, you know, someone who's been around a while. Yeah, it was, he, he was awesome. You know, he, uh, I hired him at the bike shop I was managing back, you know, however many years prior to this. And, um, he worked, he grew up like, uh, ranching for a pro flex and like all through the nineties, like, you know, he has decades of wheel building experience. And so he, he had kind of like, I hired him at the bike shop. He worked at the bike shop. I left the bike shop. He kept working there. He started a wheel building business and, uh, was doing that on the side and decided to go full time with it. So he and I were looking for space together uh, in 2014, I was like, man, I'm growing. Like, I think I need to hire a fabricator to help me out. And, uh, so he and I kind of went off, found some space here in town. We split the space in half. It was basically like a four car garage that we split in half. 
and uh, we just went for it. And um, I ended up hiring Chris Ellison, who uh, was who's the guy that I built the Rookie of the Year bike for, um, and he moved out from Colorado um, and came out and started working for me moved into the shop and that was my first employee. And, you know, back then it was just, you know, I had no idea what I was doing. Like, you know, I didn't have anything like a line, you know, I was just like, come on out and we'll just start, you know, like I got a bunch of work. I got tons of orders. Like we'll just start going for it. Uh, so he came out and I taught him how to build some, you know, taught him how to use the torch, taught him how to do brazons, you know, started to the basics and kind of moved our way up. Chris was a really, and he still is an amazing mechanic. Um, so he uh, he helped a lot with the, the complete builds and order process and was helping with emails. And um, as we were doing all this, like orders just kind of continued to kind of like pile up. Um, and we did some fun projects. Like I got to do this project with the guys out of Golden Saddle and uh, Jeff McFetridge is like this mudfoot team that they had yeah. like a little cyclocross team. Are those the... Um, but Jeff, the blue and white ones or was this prior to those we did some orange ones kind of as like a first a okay. first run and i actually did those out of, i did those out of my garage um and then the blue and white ones we'd ended up doing out of the new shop um yeah. and jeff jeff obviously has like a huge following like he's you know he's massive um and that helped a lot you know like got a lot more, more eyeballs on like what i was doing um and yeah, we just got really busy and, and I just kind of kept hiring. Um, you know, we got, uh, a friend of mine who is like, a he, he, he was working for a local like engineering, engineering company. He was looking for a change. He kind of had a huge background in Six Sigma, like lean manufacturing. Mm-hmm. And, uh, he was, he was kind of at a point where he was going to leave the company he was at and didn't really know what he was going to do next. So he kind of came and helped out beginning of 2015. And we decided to bring paint in house at that time. So we brought paint in house kind of like got to see through my vision of what it was back in 2013. And uh, we just started like, we just started, we were able to build a lot of bikes. Like we went from building, you know, when I was welding, you know, one bike a week kind of thing. And then all of a sudden we can do like three bikes a week with more hands. Um, and everybody like, it's funny. Like I talked to some guys, I've talked to a few other builders like in the industry and they're like, yeah, what happened? Like, did you get a bunch of money or like what happened? And I was like, not really. Like the logic is pretty simple, right? Like if you have a two year backlog of orders, if you have 80 frames in front of you and like you do the simple math of like what each one of those costs, you know, it's like $3,000 a job or whatever. Um, you know, you got X amount of cash that's like sitting out in front of you. You just got to complete the work to get it, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and so you, you can cash flow it yourself. Like you don't have to, and that's what we did. We, we just cash flowed it ourselves. It's like, you don't have to, you know, you don't have to get a $200,000 loan. You got this backlog of work just to get it done. And like, you get it done, you're going to get the money. Um, yeah. And, and that's kind of, that's like, was my mentality early on. And, and we did that. We leaned everything out. We like got really good at ordering. Like we started ordering tubing directly from Columbus and like we were finishing everything in house so we could control our lead times. Like all of a sudden I didn't have to ship frames to paint and wait, you know, three or four months for it at the painter. Like it could just get done immediately. Um, 
So we just kind of like leaned everything out and like re-shrunk our lead time down from like, you know, at the beginning of 2014, I had a lead time that was like a year and a half long. And then, you know, midway through 2015, we could get stuff done in like 12 to 14 weeks. Yeah. That's um, awesome. And, and that helped a ton. Like everybody would email in and be like, Oh, I can get a bike in 12 weeks. Like I just emailed so-and-so and they said they're two years out. Um, so we just like kept compounding and, you know, kept hiring guys on as we needed, as we needed the help. And this is probably where I didn't have enough business. Like, you know, the other thing that guys forget with like being the frame builder is like, you're the manufacturer, you're the manufacturer and you're also the brand and like the sales channel, right? Like uh, a lot of people in our industry just call up the manufacturer, order a hundred bikes, get them shipped over on a container. And then all they have to focus on is the brand and selling it, you know? So there's like one or two guys sitting in an office, like working on design and engineering, and they don't have to think about how they're actually going to like make it, you know, they just got to find somebody to make it for them. Um, and you know, when you're a frame builder, you're both, you're both the brand and the business and you're also the manufacturer. Um, and I thought I kind of had all the puzzle pieces like plugged in, but like the rate we were going, like, uh, we got a lot of guys on, we had been getting a ton of orders, but we weren't, we still weren't like, I had been increasing my pricing all along, but like, we still weren't charging really enough what we should have been charging at that point in time. Yeah. Um, but we grew, we grew in 2015 from probably like, you know, 2015 was Chris. And then at the end of the year, we probably had like maybe like seven guys on. Um, That's insane. <laughs> so it was, all, it was a lot. And, and, and it, we were sustainable. Like, again, we were like, we were, I was paying myself. Like I was making money. I wasn't making a ton of money, but I was making some money. And like, guys wanted to work for us. Like we had a lot of fun. We had a fun environment going on. Um, we were building a ton of bikes. People were finding out about us. So it was like, it looked good. Um, but as we, so then 2016 comes along and we, we kind of basically sustained what we had in 2015. Like we got the same amount of orders in 2016. And then, um, we repeated that and got about the same amount of orders in 2017. But, uh, you know, trying to continue to keep the volume up at a certain high and scale, like we were, we were entering this like whole, like it was basically running a business at that point in time. Like I wasn't, I wasn't even, um, through 20, 2015, we hired our first welder late 2015 and, uh, he worked for us for about a year and a half and he, he's the only one who's uh, built welded any frames that are spinners other than myself. Um, oh, that's not completely true. We ended up using, we had, I ended up using Oscar on a tail end of like when we uh, scaled back. But uh, anyway, uh, you know, for a year and a half, I was just like sitting in front of a computer, like running spreadsheets and like ordering and like, you know, yeah, not doing any of the, not doing any of the fun stuff. And, uh, I think we got, we got to 2017 and like, I was paying myself the same amount I was making in 2015. Like I was working twice as much. Um, the yeah. stress was a lot higher cause you're balancing, like now you're running, you know, you're balancing your checkbook and you're running cash analysis all the time. And like, you're doing marketing and you're doing all this stuff. And like, it was, it was like, it had transformed in from being like, you know, a small little frame building, like making cool stuff, doing my own thing 
and it had morphed into this like you know fairly you know we weren't a big business but it was a small business you know like of of substantial size and uh my my position within that had changed a lot and it kind of happened unexpectedly i I think i kind of knew where it was going and i was like okay with it but um once i got there i was kind of like man this is a lot of stress and a lot of work and um for you know not much more money i'm working twice as much and making about the same amount of money yeah that's uh, that's very very similar to the sort of the discussion that i had with carl strong uh one of my favorite episodes in this series that i've done i don't know if you know that one very well but uh yeah i mean that's sort of his story was he built strong frames up and they were even doing contract work and it just you know i don't know every detail of that but yeah it was like it was more boom and bust and it was more stress and at the end of the day he wasn't really making any more money than what he could make if he just scaled it back down and he focused on you know offering more of a premium experience and and to me that story that he presented that always resonated with me and so i think the entire time that i was pursuing frame building i i mostly knew about his his sort of you know cautionary tale or whatever it is and i said yeah i don't think i ever want to grow it anyway it'll be more special and it'll be more personal to the customer i should then be able to charge you know more if i focus one-on-one with the customer and so that you know not that i ever really got into the meat and potatoes of that but that was always kind of guided my thought about what kind of brand or shop i wanted to run and it sounds like you experienced a sort of similar thing yeah you know i carl used to teach a a business for frame builders class at nabs um and i i went to it and uh you know and i got to know carl carl and i know each other you know we're acquaintances you know we don't know each other perfectly but you know we see each other we're definitely like have a beer and say what's up but uh so carl has told this whole story to me like as a pupil you know like i'm sitting in his like his his, uh seminar and he's saying like all this stuff and telling me about his history and like i know carl like i know his story really well just because i was like so enthralled with it Mm-hmm. Um, because I was like, how, why didn't it work? You know, like a whole thing with, I and mean, I knew him from like the Ibis days and like all that stuff. Um, Scott Nicole was at a, you know, he was infamous in Northern California. So like when I grew up racing, like he was at stuff. So I, I kind of knew the connection and I kind of knew all his story, but it was like, it was almost like when he was telling the story, it was almost like a parent telling you like, don't do this. Like, you know, <laughs> you do this, you're going to run into issues. I'm like, nah, we fine. You know, like I got this. Um, but yeah, I mean, it was, basic very very similar story and like uh I, I don't i think i talked to carl a little bit about it at uh the chris king open house like we he and i got a chance to like chat and uh we were kind of jamming on some ideas and i was like yeah you know kind of like didn't listen and, and decided to do this whole thing and <laughs> um and he's like yeah you know sometimes you just got to do it for yourself i mean and, and the point is that the, the hard thing is though is like you know i think and he he'll say the same thing is doing it solo isn't the only way like you can still make money doing it with an employee or two employees but i think the hard part is yeah the hard part is is like you get you have to know the points like i use the cycling analogy a lot of the time but like when you're racing a bike like or especially on the road like if you're bridging the gap to a breakaway for example like where you don't want to end up is like attacking from the peloton and then ending up between the breakaway and the peloton like if you end up it's called no man's land and you end up in no man's land because like 
you're either not strong enough to bridge across the gap or you get caught by the Peloton and then you just get reabsorbed. And uh, like, you don't want to end up in no man's land in a business sense because, you know, you get into this point where you're not, you're, you're busting your ass trying and all you have to do is keep growing the revenue in order to make more money. And there's like a, there's a breaking point with a lot of it. Like you got to bridge across that gap to where you can like, start making more money, start working less. You can hire enough guys to kind of take care of stuff or you can't bridge that gap and you, you kind of get reabsorbed and you have to go back to like being a one man show. Um, and, you know, 2017 are Tom. So I had hired, uh, I, I had a couple fabricators before Tom, but Tom had actually come out and worked for us. So Tom was working for us at the time. And, uh, Tom decided he wanted to go back to the East coast. His dad was going through some health stuff. And like, um, I think he was just ready to be out of Santa, like Santa Barbara is like, and we, we don't really do it anymore, but you know, I try not to hire people from outside of the local area anymore, because if you don't really know, we're expect, our, the, where we live is beautiful and it's amazing. Like we ride bikes year round. Like we ride constantly. Um, we live on the, we live right by the ocean, but we also have mountains right in our backyard. So it's like, it's very intriguing, but it's very expensive to live. And if you can't navigate that kind of bubble, it makes it really difficult. Um, mm -hmm. so Tom came out and was just kind of like, love it here, but like, I got to go home. So he split when he split, uh, like I, I decided I wasn't going to bring another fabricator on. So that was either kind of like, reappropriating a few people in the shop or it was like maybe this is the time to just like kind of scale it back a little bit more um and our welder ended up leaving and he he's at carlos who's dark moon fabrications i don't know if you know uh, mm -hmm. of his yep. um gig so carlos is dark moon now um carlos moved back to la and um it was doing his own thing so then once when he left, I was like, okay, so I got back in the shop. I was welding again. We were fabricating. Um, and then, uh, you know, kind of just like shrunk back down to like a more, uh, normal size. I think at that point in time, then we had James who's our, you know, was our painter then and still our painter now. Um, and Jeremy who is still with us. And then we had a few, we had Nicole who was in our office and, we had a few other people kind of like shuffling through at that point as we were scaling down. Mm -hmm. um, and kind of like what ended up happening is like, you know, again, it, it's the fact, you know, we're small business in the bike industry. Like people oftentimes you, you either end up staying in the bike industry for a really long time or you're kind of a transient. You kind of like come in, enjoy it and you leave. And so, you know, we had a few more people leave the shop and as people left, I just didn't replace them. Um, yeah and our lead times went out and uh we just kind of like kind of controlled it that way you know it's like the nice part about being in the you know the frame building world is like people aren't unaccustomed to lead time so we just went from a 12-week lead time to 20-week lead time um and just shrunk it down so that's what we did and uh 2018 you know we did we did less than what we did in 2017 but we like i made more money and i was happier and i was less stressed out um, as we got into like midway through 2018, I think we had kind of ridden this tidal wave of like big growth and then kind of shrinking down. And, uh, the last two guys that were on, um, James and James Belru, who, uh, is good color studio. Um, 
if anybody's familiar with it. And then Jeremy, Jeremy, who's our operations fabricator guy, he ended up uh, going off and doing his own like uh, mechanic business. Mm-hmm. And um, so we started, they kind of were making this transition into doing that. I think they were kind of like burnt out. They were like, dude, we just rode like the craziest two years of our lives. Like, I think we're ready to like, maybe, maybe just slow it down even a little bit more. They'd kind of like James had gotten some notoriety in the paint industry. So he figured he could kind of like do his own gig. And um, so we were all in the same, so we still had the same shop that John and I had originally moved into. And we had actually grown the shop quite a bit. So we had more square footage. Um, and then we kind of just divvied the shop up. John was still working out of the same space as well. So the four of us, John, Jay, Jeremy, and James, we just kind of split it all up. We split rent and we just all kind of operated out of the same building, but we were operating as our own entities. Um, and that helped a lot. I mean, from, from my standpoint, it helped a ton because I cut my overhead all the way down, but I still had like, I still had my painter in the same shop. I had my wheel builder in the same shop and Jeremy was doing a lot of our complete builds and like boxing and shipping for us. So it was like, we had this like our own little Taiwan. We called it our mini Taiwan. Cause it was like, <laughs> we had our own little like hub of bike people. And like when you're in, you know, when you're sharing space or you're in a space with like other people that are doing this similar things, you know, we shared a lot of clients and we shared a lot of, um, Hey, have you seen this guy? He builds wheels. Oh, have you seen this guy? He builds frames, painter, blah, blah, blah. So it was like a good little synergy. Um, so we did that, uh, you know, through 2018 into 2019, I ended up getting a contract job to go work for a company, um, to do outside of the bike industry. It was like an acquaintance of mine was starting a business and he knew that I had a lot of business startup experience from having done this whole bike thing. Um, so I kind of like really slowed, slowed down and, and let my lead time stretch out. I was doing that part-time and I was doing the frame building part-time and it was a nice time for me to just, I, I really just wanted a break. Like my wife and I, we had had our first kid. Um, my wife's job was getting really busy at the time. So like I was just, I needed to kind of, I needed a reset button. Um, and if you're in, if you've ever been a frame builder, or you're in the frame building world, like, there's times where it's nice to just hit the reset button um, or you wish you had a reset button. Um, yeah. And so this little contract, this little contract gig was like nice for me to just like take a breath of fresh air, do something different. Um, and it was temporary. I knew it was temporary. And um, so it, it worked out nicely. So I did that for like a few, I did that for like, uh, like 10 months. And so it was pretty long. It was originally supposed to be like six months and it kind of bled out and um, ended up doing a little bit more work. And then, um, that put us like right up into the beginning of the pandemic. Um, and so the pandemic was like what, April, March, April of 2020. Um, we had, we were all in the same shop out in, um, here out in Goleta. Um, and originally like when the pandemic first hit, like even for me as a frame builder, like, the order stopped. Like it was like 60 days of like not a single deposit. It was, mm-hmm. fr- it was kind of frightening. And I still, I still had this, like, co- I still had this contract gig that I was doing, but it was tapering down and I knew it was like on its way out. So I was like, and I had a reasonable amount of backlog, you know, I probably had like four or five months worth of backlog, but I hadn't been like in the last, you know, 10 months, I hadn't really been pushing the frame building that hard. Yeah. Um, and uh, so we all decided like, 
a couple of the, you know, a few of the guys were just like, I don't know. Like, you know, I, I think James experienced the same thing on paint side. John has experienced the same thing on wheel side. Like, obviously like everybody was pretty foreign to like what this like whole COVID thing is. And our lease had been coming up like right at the same time that all of this was happening. So like end of March was the end of our lease. We had to re-sign a lease for a space that we were all splitting. Like, you know, originally when we signed this lease, like dinner was like going 120 miles an hour. Um, Mm -hmm. And so we were all a little wary on whether or not we were going to stay in the space. Plus there was these like at home stay orders. So like basically we couldn't come to an agreement to renew the lease. And so we all kind of split up. We all, we all stayed within the same town, but like we all split up and I ended up like having to move the shop home. So I moved all our fabrication equipment into my garage, which was, you know, I took everything that was in almost like 2000 square feet and reduced it back down to 400 square feet. Um, and I was like, I'm just going to go home. I'm going to sweat it out, figure out what the next steps are. And then, uh, start looking for a new shop space that I felt like more comfortable with. Um, and then like in May of 2020, like I stopped doing the contract gig with this one, one company. And, uh, like all of a sudden the orders just started like piling in like way more than I could handle, like way more work than like I had ever like order volume was like more than what we had previously gotten in, you know, 2016. Um, and I was, you know, just like lead times got ridiculous again. And it was like one of those things, James is still working, you know, he and I were working pretty closely together because he was painting everything that I was building. Mm-hmm. Um, and like, it's just, it, you know, it got, it got crazy. And we, uh, end of 2020, I brought James back on full time because we were so busy. Like he was painting 90% of the work he was doing was painting all my own, my stuff. And, um, yeah, we found a, I ended up, I, I had been looking slowly like through my network here in town, like looking for shop space. And so we found a new shop um, and I needed to find a new shop because I had too many tools and too much stuff and like crammed back into my garage. Like it was, it was really, the garage was really supposed to be a temporary thing just because like um, we didn't really have a next step after the old shop and like yeah. COVID and all this other stuff. Like we just didn't, I was like such a, looking back on it, like I, I really wish I would have known what I we knew today, but like, you know, we, I didn't at the time. And so it was just, um, we had to make a lot of, uh, short term decisions and, um, yeah. found the shop, found the shop where we're at currently, where I'm sitting currently. Um, and we found that beginning at 21 and, and moved in and, um, James moved in and James and I were slugging it out all through 2021. Like, getting a lot of orders, trying to make, uh, you know, all our customers and all our dealers happy. And it just got really busy through 2021. Jeremy, who ended up, you know, was doing his mechanic business. He ended up coming back and he's working with us full time again. So, um, now it's James, Jeremy and I, um, running the show. We have a, we have, uh, one pseudo part-time person that kind of helps me out with like business man, business, order management stuff. Um, Mm -hmm. but we're probably going to keep it. I mean, if the, it seems like things have kind of leveled out, um, we're all pretty experienced, uh, at this point in time, like builders experienced in the frame building world. Um, but the goal now, like, you know, 
as this order increases happened through COVID, like, you know, it was really easy to get back into the mentality of like, let's grow, let's grow, let's grow. <laughs> um, but just because it can be kind of a contagious, you know, like it can be a bit of a drug, right? Like you're getting all these orders and like the tendency to want to just like, you like, wow, this is like, you know, to scale would be a lot of fun. Um, and I'm making like a really conscious effort to just take it one step at a time. Like, I learned so much doing it the first time. Like I learned the ins and outs of cash management and how to do it without needing outside money. And I, without borrowing money, like, you know, all these things. And, and so I have a de- I had a decent recipe, but the recipe needed to be revised. Um, and so, you know, as we're growing it, you know, kind of the second time, um, I'm kind of growing it with like, you know, James and Jeremy are like an integral part of like the business and like our, all of our employees who have ever worked for Sinner throughout the life of it have been. Um, but like, you know, I want it to be a place that they want to work and not be stressed out and not be miserable and, and be motivated by like building great things and like designing cool stuff. And like, um, you know, as a business owner, you have like responsibility to your employees to make sure that that, that happens. And like, you know, we don't need to grow just for growth sakes. Like we want to grow to the right size and like, you know, be able to manage it correctly. And um, so, yeah, it's been a lot of fun. Like we're, we're kind of growing the team again and kind of getting everybody back together. Uh, Being by myself was fun, but I'm not, you know, it was fun. Like I made a ton of money. I had a lot of orders, all this fun stuff, but like, I really like the team environment and I like having, um, I like having guys in the shop that I get to work with that I get to like pitch ideas to and we get to like, run things by each other. And, um, like, I think with the iteration that we're at now, like the focus is to make really good bikes and make them to the best of our ability and, or grow organically. And just like, if there is growth, if there isn't any growth, that's totally fine too. Um, and just enjoy doing what we're doing and, and get to be, get to be craftsmen and get to be, get to be frame builders. So, so yeah. Yeah. That's really cool to hear your side of that and uh, to think, to relate that to sort of the ideas that I had heard many years ago put forward by Carl Strong and then to relate that now to my own business experience that I've had with my business, which is a little bit different, but a little bit the same. And I think a common thread is just that, like, I don't know what the hell I'm doing. I, you know, I don't know. I listen to podcasts. <laughs> I listen to audiobooks. I talk to people. I'm not completely uninformed, but like, I don't really know what I'm doing. I'm just trying. And I, I hear that a lot from, from Carl's story and from yours. And of course, from other people's too. It's just like, you know, none of us have an MBA and, and you know, the funny thing about like going to business school is like, you don't go to business school to start your own business. Like you go to business school to manage <laughs> other people's businesses by and large entrepreneurs never went to business school. And like, there'd be kind of a weird track, you know, like it's, it's a different sort of right. thing. I, I took a small business and for anyone who's running their own small business and hanging on for dear life, uh, check out your local small business development center. You probably have one in the United States somewhere near you. And I had taken some like fast track business classes for like 150 bucks. It was like a three day course that I took once. And, you know, it's just like a cursory overview of a bunch of stuff, but it's helpful. And yeah, the woman who was leading it, she was saying she had an MBA 
And I asked her about that. And she's like, yeah, you wouldn't really get an MBA to start your own business. Typically you could, but you know, most people <laughs> who want to start a business, it's like a different personality. Like you're stubborn. You want to figure it out. A lot of entrepreneurs aren't even that good in like school because they can't focus on what other people want them to, but they're more of a right. self-starter. And so anyway, the point, uh, this is totally an aside, but yeah, it's, it's kind of funny to relate that to my own thing. And it, growth is kind of terrifying because, you know, you imagine like if you ever just stayed on an even keel where you had a certain amount of revenue every month and you just paid the bills that you had to pay, you know, what would it take for that to be sustainable for you to have a safe cushion? That's one thing. But like, as you're growing, the amount of money that you can put into the growth is enormous. And, uh, Right. It, especially for a business like mine, like just the cost of the machinery, but then that's not even my biggest expense, you know, like the, the cost of space is more than the machinery. Uh, and then the cost of the labor is the most expensive. And so to think of a business like frame building, you know, you don't have like a hundred thousand dollars CNC, but your payroll would have been, you know, like multi, like probably five or 10 or 15 CNC machine payments, you know, it's probably like 15 or 20 CNC machine payments at your biggest there. The labor is expensive. <laughs> oh yeah. Yeah. I mean, labor will kill you. I mean, and that's like the, we joke about it all the time here in the shop, you know, it's like we got, we were just joking about it today. It's like, you know, if we want to get more oftentimes when you're like, I need to get more throughput, like the efficiencies we can, we can, we can make ourselves as efficient as we, we can, but like, we're still in a highly creative role. Like there's, there's not a ton of automation um, that can be done in, in what we make. Um, yeah. You know, like I'm on a, I'm doing a really cool project, uh, consulting project right now, which I would love to dive into more. And maybe we can talk about it on another podcast, but uh, uh, <laughs> I got, I, I, I got it. I just can't talk about it right now, but I got a job basically like helping um, develop uh a, a big company is getting into like us made bikes. Uh, they're not really stepping on the frame building community. So, but they're just trying to make bikes, make frames in the U S. Um, mm -hmm. and, uh, we got to work on, and it's basically all thought out. Now it just needs to be, um, basically put together, but it's a fully automated frame building line. Um, which is really cool. It was a hu it's huge project. Like I got to flex, like, every ounce of like engineering um, muscle that I have in my body. I'm not a trained engineer, but I've learned a lot. Yeah. Um, and, uh, but you know, that was a cookie, it's a cookie cutter product. Like one size, you know, it's like three sizes, you know, like it's like a lot of it is fixed dimensions. Like, you know, you can't, but in the custom world, like it's really hard to automate what we do. Like we can, we all nerd out on, that's why like you're in business, right? Like mm -hmm. you're trying to make efficient, to, efficient tools for like, high variability you know and like that can be tricky you know like yeah. um and you can only lean it out and make it as efficient as you can until you just need more hands in the room to help you get it done but labor like you said is super expensive yeah you know it's like far more expensive than a machine you know a hundred thousand dollar machine and you know like it, it costs you over the lifetime of it it's like it's very hard to measure because it's it's constantly changing and constantly going up um and it's like emotionally driven there's all these other yeah. like aspects there's, to it that make it like very tough the the thought of like if you have a machine and then all of a sudden it's not really relevant 
to your needs or it's not the right fit, you know, you sell the machine or you just, you stop using it for a while and it collects dust and like it, it's, <laughs> you don't have to consider the machine at all, which is obvious, right. but like really, yeah, you yeah. know, like if you, if you have a conscience and you have an employee, you're going to, you're going to think about their well being and their happiness, their development, you know, their career prospects. I mean, you know, hopefully, hopefully it's, it's a win-win situation, but and, you know, for me, like, that's always been kind of driving for me. It's like, I, I would like any employment situation I offer to be very much like a, a win-win situation for all parties. And, uh, you know, it's easier said than done. Like, it's a, it's a challenging thing to really manage all outcomes. And, uh, yeah, it's, it's tough. Yeah, it's hard. Um, it's really hard. And, and, like, I don't have, I mean, I don't have visions of growing to, like, some you know, maybe I did five or six years ago, but I don't anymore really, you know, I, I want to make, I want to make a decent living so I can live, continue to live here in Santa Barbara. You know, like I got a family and I got kids and, uh, I got a house payment, you know, all that fun stuff. And so I want to, I want to just be able to continue to do that and, uh, and, and be here and, and employ the guys that, you know, I, you know, like the guys that I have on and, and make them happy and, uh, guys or gals, um, you know, and, and just be a, be a fun place. I, I, that's what I always wanted it to be anyway, as I just wanted it to be a fun place for people to work, you know? And like, we haven't even touched on like, you know, I know a lot of your podcasts are all are really heavy on like the kind of like the, um, frame building side and yeah. like, you know, this is tending to morph into more of a business discussion, <laughs> I, but like, uh, I love that know. side of it, but yeah, we, we probably should talk a little bit about process too. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, it's like, it's, uh, anyway, I, I've, I've learned a lot and I just really want it to be, a. Uh, we're in a really good place now. And I feel like we're making the best bikes we've ever made. Um, it's allowing me more creative freedom into doing stuff. Like we just, like, I know this is like tiptoeing into your world, but like, it was super exciting for us, but we bought a 3d printer, you know? So we're like 3d That's printing awesome. our stuff and in house. And like, you know, how satisfying that can be, you know, it's like in the past, we're like used to like, you know, either we'd ship it off to shapeways or like, you know, if we were just getting something machined, we'd kind of like design it and then just hope that it was going to come out of the CNC shop, like pay a couple hundred bucks for a prototype kind of thing. And now that we get to like, just hit print in the beginning of the, you know, when we go home at night and we come in and we have a, if all things go right, we have a, a part in the morning is, you know, to like mock up and, and use that's physical. There's just something like very rewarding about that. Wait, so you're saying you bought a metals 3d printer? No, 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 no. Oh, like okay, okay, okay. Not like a true, <laughs> we just bought a, like an, we just bought the ender, like the gotcha, Amazon one. Gotcha. Uh, like, and it, but it's like, I just mean like, you know, we can print a drop out and like put yeah. it on our fixture, mm-hmm. like miter a chain stay piece to it and fit it up in like, and I don't have to like, even though Shapeways, like you can get stuff in a couple of days, but like, there's just something about having it in a few hours. That's like, yeah. I don't know. It's like addicting. So like we're constantly making stuff and like having a lot of fun with that. And, uh, but no, I mean, like I, we, I do, I'd love to get more, like, I think, uh, you know, like the metal 3d printing, I'm, I'm not fully sold on it for a man, like for our process yet. Yeah. Um, but like that stuff really intrigues me you know, and, uh, we've really enjoyed kind of like diving deeper into like, how can we make our bikes the absolute best that we can? Then like, how can we make good bikes, but make hundreds of them, you know, like it's, it's a little shift in mentality for us now. So, yeah, 
that's been a fun transition for us. Uh, yeah, I can imagine. I think um, one of the things, you know, when I think about the challenge proposed to frame building as a business that endures, that doesn't just burn you out, that actually can provide a sustainable living. I think one of the things that works to your advantage is if you can just hang on, you know, like I think in the beginning, there's just, it's a complicated endeavor to build a bike frame. There's like a thousand steps just in the fabrication. There's little tricks you're going to learn and your familiarity and all that. And then there's the business side of it, the marketing side of it. You know, do you even have the right personality to relate to your best customers? Uh, it, it just a million and one things. And as you know, over the years, like you're saying, you had all this bike shop experience and, and cycling industry experience just leading into frame building. And yeah, that's huge. Like for instance, when I tried to get a QBP account, I spun my tires. I eventually gave up and I cursed them. You know, I was like really upset. <laughs> like I couldn't, <laughs> right, right. I couldn't yeah, make yeah, it. Yeah. I kept calling them back and they would just ignore me. And I was like, what the hell does it take to get through I think them? that's like, I think that's the norm now. So you're definitely yeah. not, uh, yeah, not they, the only one. They have, QBP has such a, a positive reputation for bike shops. And uh, yeah, it's hard when you're a small builder. It, it wasn't my experience to like get them to give you the time of day, which is frustrating. But anyway, yeah. yeah, you had all this experience, and so that was that was you know one quadrant of your of your you know necessary skill set that you didn't really have to put any real energy into. And so for frame builders who can like who can hang on, who can persist long enough that where like they don't need to think so much about the fabrication anymore. They've gotten to that point where they're they're pretty familiar, efficient, confident, well-tooled up, you know, and, and, and they, they kind of have a little bit of the legwork done to have built a brand that, you know, I mean, it sounds like, you know, you really had a response early on that allowed you to grow. And that's awesome. That's, you know, what we all hope for. And, uh, I, and I know that takes, you know, longer for some people than others. I think that just partly it has to do with whether or not what you're doing resonates with the right kind of buyer. And I know that can be tough for a lot of people because a lot of us, like myself, like I was, especially when I was younger, I was just like such a cheapskate. Like I just did not have expensive <laughs> tastes at all, but I just wanted to make nice things for the satisfaction of it. Well, if you don't have expensive tastes, how are you ever going to relate to your customer? You know, like the, the, right. the people that you relate to, yeah, they just buy a used Surly off of Craigslist like you did. Like they're not spending top dollar, you know, so like you, if you can't relate to your customer, it's just really tough. And so anyway, yeah. there's a lot of things, but like if you can endure long enough through <laughs> through the difficulty of it, you just become, you know, like that your your experience just really helps you. And I so anyway, to relate that to where you're at now, it sounds like, you know, you've been through a lot of stuff over the years and a lot of ups and downs and you're to a point where, you know, you don't have to think about this or that or you have this on autopilot and it allows you to continue to explore because frame building has that to offer that it's it's such a deep challenge that if you want to keep digging deeper there's always new avenues to pursue and there's new technology and there's there's just all different directions you could take it you know if you wanted to you could you could study the perfection of it forever yeah exactly and i think that i think you you hit home i mean what i'm taking away from what you're saying and it would be like a big piece of advice i'd give anybody that's starting out is like give and, and most luckily most cyclists are into this but like get you know you have to endure the process like it's not a get rich quick scheme it's not any of that stuff like it's a lifelong learning process and like as you get more experience and like i look back on where i was 10 years ago or even six years ago to where i am today like i have so many tools in my toolkit that make me faster and more efficient 
just because I like, now I guess it's kind of like, it can be a little counterintuitive, right? Because like, I, I kind of had this like fail fast mentality early on. So I learned a lot and, you know, I can't be resentful for what I did previously because, you know, you can't, I, I wouldn't know what I know today without having gone through what I went mm-hmm. through. But as time has gone on, things have gotten a lot easier. And like you said, there's a lot of stuff that I do day to day that takes me seconds to do, but used to take me hours just because I've, I'm so used to it or I've built a system or I have something in place that has like made that step more efficient. And it's, you know, as frame builders, I love it when guys are like, Hey, how long does it take you to build a frame? And it's like, why is that even relevant? Like, I mean, I guess it's relevant to a point, but it's really not that relevant because what's relevant is like, how long does it take you from like talking to your customer to getting it delivered to them? Mm-hmm. And that whole process is much longer than like how long it takes you to build a frame. Like, yeah. okay, great. Like you can build a frame in six hours, but it's still, why do you have a nine month wait list and only 20 people on your wait list? Like that doesn't make any sense. Yeah. Um, so it's, it's just like, I think you, over time you build this toolkit to be, be really efficient from the beginning to the end, but we all kind of enter in this like frame builder wanting to build and not all of us, I guess, you know, some of us that are probably listening are painters or, you know, machinists or, you know, making parts for the finished product. But like we get into it because we enjoy a section of the craft. Yeah. But like, you really got to look at it holistically and you get better at the whole process of everything as time goes on. So like just do more, like, dig in, do more work, be thoughtful, be smart, you know, like, you you know, you still got to do all those things, you know, and the best advice I ever got was like business 101, like, make your customers happy, you know, deliver on time. You know, if you don't deliver on time, apologize and like, don't be an a-hole, you know, like, you know, be, be a thoughtful, conscious business owner, answer your phone, answer your emails, you know, like, you don't have to, you know, you can just do the basics and you can get really far and learn a lot by just doing that. So yeah. Every time you have a frustrating experience with some other business, like think about how that, how, how you can use that experience to help guide the the way that you want to be better. Like for instance, one of the, one of the vendors that we have that's exceptional is McMaster car. There may be like, I don't know, Mm -hmm. like the QBP of like, online hardware stores or i don't know what you'd call them they're like they're amazing i don't know if you do it with basically them. yeah yeah they're, they're incredibly oh, yeah. All the time. they make they yeah. make the amazon.com buying experience feel ridiculously clunky and slow that's how good oh, they yeah. are oh, and yeah. like you call them and you get somebody who knows what they're talking about who immediately helps you all this stuff like they're amazing and every they're, so they're the gold standard and every other vendor we have sucks compared to them <laughs> to one degree or another some of them are still pretty good some of them right. are abysmal and you try to fire those ones and get better ones but Anyway, so like we have to deal with a lot of vendors in different capacities and and I just I use my like <laughs> frustration for like how mismanaged all these, you know, local organizations are, the the powder coaters especially and the anodizers and the laser yeah. cutters and you know just like even, you know, your accountant and your 
the the regulatory government websites you have to deal with and everything that's just friction and pain and frustration i just think like i you know i don't ever want my paying customers to have to deal with any of this like i do want to respond to emails quickly i do want to ship in a reasonable time frame or or get ahead of it with communication when there is an issue you know when there's when there's like a a problem that arises that's not really either one of our faults like maybe it was a shipping issue or just an organic miscommunication i just try to take care of it for them because like wouldn't that be nice and like it's it's that stuff where it's like it maybe it seems obvious but like you know, I, every time I, I reflect on the sins of these other vendors, I, I think like, do we ever do this to our customers? Cause like, I, I do not want that for them. <laughs> yeah, totally. And I think, you know, I, you know, we get the frame building community and a lot of like frame builders get, I, I, you can correct me if I'm wrong, if you've heard different, but like, you know, there's been, I've heard some horror stories of like other builders. Oh, I tried to get a frame, but it took forever. Or I couldn't get this or I couldn't do that. Or they didn't communicate well, or I got the wrong color, or all these other things. Yeah. And like, you know, I think for, a, it, you got to look at it from both sides. I think for a lot of builders, like they put you, you're literally putting physical time and energy into something. Um, so then to hear that it didn't turn out right, almost feels like it's a slight against you. And I'd say for anybody that's making bikes by hand is you really got to take yourself out of the equation. Like at the end of the day, the person's buying the product that you're making and like they're buying into your story. And the reason that they're buying a bike from you is because they like what you're bringing to the table and because you're making it, that's why they're paying a premium for it. But at the end of the day, they're going to walk away with an experience that they had with you. And then they're going to walk away with a physical product that hopefully they're riding for a really long time and you got to take the, to a certain extent, you got to take a little bit of the emotion out of it. Like for your client, it's emotional because they're buying something handmade and they're buying something custom that's made to them. And so you have to do a really good job navigating that experience. It's not as like, it's not a click and buy, right? Like we're not frame builders, you know, custom frame builders aren't a click and buy. And if they've been waiting nine months for it, you've built this, like you've, you've only heightened the experience of what they're expecting to get and, or maybe it's waned because somebody didn't really want to wait nine months, even though they signed up for it. Um, Mm -hmm. Either way, you know, there's this like tumultuous emotional thing. And and where we found to be really successful is like, even if it took, you know, especially through the pandemic, it took us 10 months to get a build kit. We finally got the bike out the door and then like somebody hops on their bike and like, it doesn't shift you know, like, like, Oh no, what happened? And then like a DI two wire pulled out of something, you know, and it's like something minor, but like literally, I mean, and we've done it before is like, we'll have the customer, you know, send it to their local bike shop. We'll pay the local bike shop to put the bike back in the box. We'll pay to have it shipped back to us. And literally we'll plug the DI two wire back in, tape it to make sure it's fine getting shipped there, ship it all the way back to them. We'll burn hundreds of dollars, but like, doing that experience and making sure that the customer is like happy is immeasurable. And uh, most of the time those people end up becoming our best word of mouth referrals, even though they may have been super painful through the whole process to deal with. Like at the end of the day, they sell more bikes for us. Yeah. And not that that's the only thing we want out of it, but we also want it to be a pleasurable experience for that person, no matter, no matter what. And, you know, there's the homage of like the customer is always right. I don't necessarily agree with that entirely, but you know, I think being open and honest and communicating and like 
sometimes you just got to jump on the sword. But the, the problem is, is like, I think for a lot of builders, like you get to that stage, like, you know, my bike doesn't shift right. And they're like, well, good luck, you know, like, and that's not the experience that that person that just spent, you know, 10 grand on a bike is really looking for, you know, like, yeah. So sometimes you got to eat it and sometimes you got to like, and I'm sure you deal with it in your world. I mean, I mean, I'm sure I know you do. Like I, I remember talking with Don about stuff over and over, you know, like a lot alignment, you know, I'm sure you have that conversation yeah. all of the time. Yeah. And, uh, that can be a really, <laughs> you know, painful conversation to have over and over and over and over again. And if somebody is judging the product that you're making, you know, I built a frame and it came out, it's not straight. And it's like, okay, well, how can I help you? How can I make the experience better? Instead of just saying like, I built it, it's straight. Like, you know, I know my, I know my fixture is flat, like deal with it. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I don't take you as the type of guy that would be that way, you know, like educating. And that's the best thing that Don, I think ever did was he was really educated. You hop on the phone, you call that guy, and he would spend an hour on the phone talking to you about, you know, alignment and all that stuff. Like no yeah. matter how many times you had talked about it that day, and so, yeah, like you said, I mean, that's the experience that a lot of our clients are looking for. Yeah. And I think it's, I think it's really important to do that. I think, uh, that reminds me of this distinction that I don't think I've, maybe I've talked about on this podcast some, but, uh, I, we make a frame fixture and we make a stand for it and there's a bench mount stand. It's a lot, it's pretty much exactly like what Don did with the anvil ones. There's like the bench mount stand comes standard and then there's a, a mating rolling lower stand that looks exactly like his. Okay. It's a pretty blatant copy. Uh, but anyway, we make that stuff. And so it's square tube and we, we weld it together and we powder coat it and put the wheels together and all that stuff, bill of materials. We figure it out and we just send it to you in a box. So anyway, there's and and it's like a lot of work and it's not in our wheelhouse we're not particularly efficient at it and some people when i talk about this they say well if you don't want to make it you know like that's like if a frame if they can build a bike they can build a stand like you know why would they buy that or like why would they expect you to provide that and my thought is just like you know like all all your not all your best but a lot of your best customers they do just want to buy that you know like they they have right. the money cuz like i mean honestly like when you sell frame building fixtures a lot of your best customers are not professional frame builders who put thousands of bikes through them a lot of your best customers are like you know some some uh you know dad who's got a pretty good job and he thinks it would be really satisfying to make some bikes in his garage from time to time so he buys the fixture totally. to him with his really good salary or something it's not that big of a hurdle to get started with it and um i want my fixtures to work for someone like that as well as anyone else or another example is like imagine somebody who works at a school and they have some budget to put together to like get a frame building course started and they're excited they find my website they want to buy my stuff and if i don't have a frame fixture stand for them you think this individual who's in charge of purchasing is really going to like spend two days (laughs) designing and then fabricating some sort of stand just so they can buy this from me no they don't want to do that like they need the easy option and they might even be ecstatic about the idea of like being able to offer that for their students but they don't necessarily have time to do that themselves and so anyway for all these reasons combined i think that sort of distinction this is a frame building tool one but like uh, yes, like your customer, they should be competent enough to plug in their DI2 wire or to take it to their local bike shop and like ask their mechanics like, hey, I'm having some trouble with this. I should not need to send this back to Santa Barbara. I'm sure there's a way that you could surely help me with this. And I don't need to pester, you know, Aaron about this. But on the other hand, 
what kind of business do you want to offer? And for me, it's like, uh, to me, like there's a very low bar of entry to be my customer. I'm, I will take, I will take the, the new beginner who's never done this. I will take the, the beginner who's, who's, you know, later in life and doesn't really have time to figure stuff out. I'll take the person who is whatever, like any and all categories. Right. I'm just going to try and give you a good experience that would make you glad that you did business with me and that you would tell your friends and, you know, within reason, I'm going to do whatever I can to be helpful because that's just like, those are the kind of businesses that I want to help. And, and generally most of your customers are not very much trouble. So like when you're really, when you really show up for the ones that are kind of more trouble, it like, I don't know, I feel like it all works out in the end most of the time. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, I think you nailed it. I think like, you know, you know, for us, it's offering not just, you know, like you said, it's not just offering just the frame. Like we do the whole experience and we do the whole thing. And like, you know, uh, you know, and to, to take your stand example, I bought the stand from Don. Like I, yeah. did I make that stand? Absolutely. 100%. But I think when I bought it, it was like 350 bucks. Yep. Like I sell one frame and it pays for it. Like just get back to what you're doing, like what you're good at and go be mm -hmm. better at what you want to be good at. Um, then like, and, and I, I think we all are, uh, um, guilty of this, but like, you know, as DIYers, like a lot of us are DIYers, like, yep. you know, we have a tendency to like do things that we shouldn't be doing and then leaving <laughs> it to the professionals. But, uh, you know, I've gotten a lot better at that. It's like staying in my lane and doing what I'm really good at. Like I have wanted to own a CNC and like to watch your process and like the business that you've grown, like just makes me want to own a CNC machine even more. Mm -hmm. And like, could I get one and like, and like run one and like, yeah, I can do, I can do all that, but like, I'm not, I'm not a great CNC machinist. Like it would be a hobby and like, I'd make parts from like our bikes, but like, we don't have, you know, we make 200 bikes a year. We don't make like enough parts. Like I can make enough parts for all of our frames for a whole year and like, you know, a week. Yeah. Um, like I don't need to spend time doing that. Um, I want to be a better frame builder. I want to be better at welding and I want to be better at offering like a better customer experience. And I want to like focus my time and energy on that. Like, yeah, could CNC stuff be a lot more fun. Sure. Could like welding a frame fixture be fun. Like kind of back to what we were talking about when we're we going to get that time to do like the, the projects that just kind of like tickle us and make us excited. Like, yeah, we we're getting less and less of that time, but like, you know, I like working with people like yourself where you're offering a complete product um, and offering that whole experience because at the end of the day, I want a good experience. I want to be able to get in there and get a product that I know is going to work. And it's going to like, I'm going to have the support that I get after it. And like, I want to do the same thing for my customers is like offer that full, that full package. So yeah, um, absolutely. Sometimes you got, sometimes you got to ship a complete bike back to you to plug in a DI2 <laughs> wire, but that's okay. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And I mean, yeah, it's just like, I think, I think people realize uh, you, hopefully they realize that I, I feel like um, it's easy to roll your eyes and complain at like certain kinds of customers. And certainly when I worked in a bike shop and some other environments, it just seems easy. I mean, cause yeah, like sometimes they're really super obnoxious customers. And, but also I, I feel like the way that you approach the customer relationship and the nature of the work that you do for them really tends to change it. And I would say in like about, you know, coming up on four years that I've had doing this full time, uh, I have had very, very few experiences with customers that made me want to roll their roll my eyes, like it, almost none. 
And I, I don't think that that is like a total fluke. I think part of it is just like the way that you begin the relationship and the way that you manage the relationship uh, reflects back on like how they come to you when they have a misunderstanding or an issue with something. Like I, I think by now, if I, if I was, I don't know, I, f- I feel like I would have more and it's, I don't think it's that I'm so patient or something. It's like, I, I know what it's like to have annoying customers, but like, I think when you get ahead of it by like, uh, you know, shipping when you said you were going to ship and, you know, providing the information in a way that they can access it and, and, you know, whatever, uh, you know, you just tend to have better experiences. Yeah. You know, like you and I don't have a whole lot of interaction on, I mean, in general, but like definitely, you know, I, I will, would love to own some of the tools that you make and I probably should buy some of them. Um, <laughs> like your, like your brazon clamps, like the, you know, I love those things. Those things look awesome. And I probably should retire the ones that I have and just get the, get those. But uh, a point being like, I think you do a really good job. Uh, you know, I follow you on Instagram. Like, I, I think you do a really good job, you know, relating to your customers and relating to the business. I do think you have, and you're selling yourself a little bit short. I think you, you're doing a really good job kind of uh, making yourself accessible and, 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 and you're probably more patient than you, you're, than some other people in the industry and just that you're, you're curious and you're interested and you're, and you know, you're motivated and you're building great product and, even if it's, if you're building something and you don't know if it's great, you're getting feedback and you're open to feedback. And like all of those things I think are uh, products to making you a better business owner and entrepreneur and like being curious and being open-minded and um, being able to take critical feedback. Well, I think are all good things. And like, but I, I and just as an observer from the outside, I think you're doing all those things. And it's been really cool to see. I mean, in those four years that you've been growing it, it's been exciting to see. I mean, look, did you just buy a new shop? Like you're moving into your own shop and like, Hell you're, yeah, you're, uh, <laughs> yeah, you're, you're, you're going for it. And like, that's awesome. You know, like, and, and you wouldn't be there if you weren't the person that you are today. So like, I think you're doing, you know, not to blow smoke on your own podcast, but I, it's, it's genuine. And I really think you're doing a, I think you're doing a great job. So keep doing what you're doing. Well, damn. Thanks a lot. I'm trying to do a good job here and um, I appreciate the (laughs) the kind words. I'm just going to try and keep trying here. (laughs) I don't know. It's a lot of nice things you just said. (laughs) (laughs) No, no, I think, I mean, I think you're doing, I think you're doing what we, you know, I think you're doing a great job. You know, I get the occasional new builder that like hits us up or like, Hey, you guys looking for work or Hey, I went to UBI or, you know, this, that, and the other. And like, what fixture should I buy? Because, you know, like they come into the shop and they see like, well, who, who built this? Oh, they don't have business anymore. And uh, sometimes I feel like I need to just have other fixtures in the shop so I can show people like, oh, this isn't the only fixture that exists. And uh, so I point in your direction all the time. So hopefully you're getting some, hopefully get, I mean, it's not going to change, change the world, but uh, hopefully you're getting one or two orders out of that. Um, your fixture looks awesome. I, you know, I think you've done a great job with it. So. Thanks. Keep yeah. it up. And those cool top caps. You got some sweet top caps. Oh, yeah. Yeah, those, you know, those were a wild experience. I've never done bicycle components. And there was a white industries top cap that I had that I just adored. And I said, you know, I want to make one in bronze and I want to write Cobra on it. And then I made a couple more and then I made a couple more and then, you know, it kind of evolved from there pretty rapidly. And that was, I'm sure I can still sell more and I can push them more, but I, I, in my head, it kind of feels like that's something that's mostly over and done with, but man, 
for like a month or so there, we we had like doubled our revenue. It was insane. That's crazy. That like <laughs> I spent years like all this time developing products and these like complicated assemblies and testing them and right. you know all this work on the front end and all this stuff. And then with these stupid top caps, I have this like this CNC lathe that I got a good deal on, but like old CNC lathes don't cost that much. They're pretty cheap. And so anyway, it's like this one machine and then the engraving from my mill. But like, really it's like I I did a huge amount of revenue with like almost no design time on, on a machine (laughs) that cost me almost nothing selling it through a channel that I had already, you know, my Instagram and my website that I had already established for other reasons. So it was really not a whole lot of effort. And, you know, there was a, uh, maybe related, maybe unrelated to frame building, but I felt like there was a big business lesson with that that I had, which was that um, part of the, I think maybe the secret to business can be, or an approach that you could take is just like, if you can manage to stay afloat long enough and you just keep trying new ideas, it's like the throwing stuff at the wall and seeing what sticks. It's like, you just need to run a lot of experiments, you know, and a lot of them are going to fail or they'll do okay. Or who knows, you know, some of your favorite, most like, enthusiastic ideas are just not going to be received well. And then sometimes you just have some dumbass idea and it just takes off and you, you just couldn't predict it, you know? So it's like, I think that's one of the secrets. It's just like, uh, yeah, maintaining a sustainable overhead so you can afford to keep, you know, rolling the dice and trying stuff. Yeah, hundred percent. And, uh, and at least if you're not going to like, if it's not going to actually become a product category. You get to just flex that muscle for a little bit and like make some money and, uh, yeah. deliver a cool product and like, do do fun stuff i mean and that's like ultimately like you said you know that's like why you know i'm sure you don't don't dream of making top caps forever but uh you know it's fun to do that and learn and uh yeah and have fun so that's that was that was really cool to see and uh i think that is like you said fail 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 fast try lots of things and you don't know what's gonna stick and um you know that's a it's a good good mentality to have in this in this industry so yeah. Now I do have a couple questions on my list that pertain a little bit more specifically to frame building. Um, yeah. So let's get into those. Now you said you took a frame building class that was fillet brazing. And I know that I had, cause I, so for me, what I remember seeing of your bikes, the, the beginning of it was I probably, maybe I followed you on Instagram directly, but I think probably it was, you know, the, the probably blog or, you know, John Watson's okay. uh, reporting yep. that got your bikes on my radar. But sometime back then, you know, I was, I was very obsessed with anything on the internet about frame building that I could find back in, you know, 2010 <laughs> through, well, since and anyway so i saw your stuff and i remember it was philip braised and then it was philip braised and tig and what was that entry point for tig welding for you did you take another class or did you get pointers from somebody else and like uh you know now that's the process and really to run a business it's really kind of hard to do that with philip but like how did you get started with tig welding yeah so i i did the philip braised class like i did the two-week frame building class in philip braised at ubi and then i right after i did like that you that friday it ended and then saturday and sunday they offered a tig seminar um and i just did the two i did the two-day tig seminar before i left and mike DeSalvo taught taught that um and i just got lucky like it was mike and myself and one other guy so for like 16 hours I just got like Mike DeSalvo to like walk me through TIG welding and like looking back on looking back on it I wish I would have had a lot more like I had some TIG experience mostly like MIG experience just like 
having grown up with my grandfather and like, you know, they own some property and, you know, you repair equipment on the property and that kind of stuff. Um, so I had like some, some very rudimentary knowledge and like welding. Um, and I wish I would have had a lot more going into those 16 hours of them. Cause like, as you know, with TIG welding, like your first 16 hours is just like, it's like you're fumbling through yeah. it, you know? Um, and, but like it accelerated me enough to where I was like, okay, I can make a bead. I can like, get a joint and I can like glue it together. Um, so I, for the first like 2010 to 2012, like almost the first two years, two and a half years, all I was building was fillet brace stuff because that was what I felt most comfortable with. And it also had the largest, like widest margin for error. Um, and I was practicing TIG the whole time. Now, like through that time, I was really only practicing on steel but I practiced and practiced and practiced. I probably had hundreds of hours under my belt on practice joints, breaking them, uh, built like one bike for myself and it never broke. But, uh, you know, I, I did all these things along like for two and a half years, like at the end of mostly like on Fridays, like I'd just like quit at four o'clock and I'd open a beer and then I'd like weld for like two hours. Like any welders, uh, if you get, if you practice TIG welding, they'll tell you to take a shot of whiskey before you start welding, just to mostly calm me, keep your hands steady. But, that's funny. Uh, I don't think I have heard that, but that's funny. Oh, you haven't? <laughs> well, I've, I've heard yeah. the, yeah, like, I mean, if you've ever drink a glass of wine before you give a speech, I've heard that. It's a similar sort of thing. Yeah. But... Yeah. It's like the shot of whiskey before you weld, like when you're learning, mostly just to keep, you know, as if you, if you ever start, like it's, you know, keeping your hands steady. Um, yeah. and like, you kind of got with TIG, you got, it's like playing the drums. You got a lot, a lot of things yeah. going on at one time. You know, you got three. Yeah. It's, it's tricky. So, uh, and then like, I, yeah, I mean like to your point, I realized in 2012, I was just like, there's no way I'm going to make money Philip phrasing. And like ultimately where I wanted to go in the bikes that I wanted to make didn't really have Philip Brazing in the equation, but like I, I had this really romantic feeling of like lug bikes and Philip Brace stuff and, a lot of the recommendations that I had gotten were just like to start there. So that's why I started there. Um, Something that I would say, and I want you to weigh in on this, what you think I, I would tell people that, you know, you can, you can learn TIG welding and you can learn oxyacetylene brazing. And I think that um, it's like, they're probably similarly hard to totally master. I mean, I'm sure you can get better and better at brazing for many years, but I feel like in the beginning, yeah, brazing is typically, I think a little bit easier to learn. And I think it's a little bit safer in terms of it's like failure mode. And so I would recommend, you know, like for a lot of builders, start with steel, start with brazing, then maybe move into TIG unless you, you, you want to be especially ambitious or you already have some sort of metalworking background. Would you agree with that? Yeah, I think so. Uh, you know, I think you get different different people with different experiences, like you said, and like some people pick up a TIG torch and just like gra- like gravitate towards it really quickly and like can, mm-hmm. can get it done. Um, but yeah, I think there's like you know a wider margin of error. But I don't want to correlate it directly to this because it's not exactly the same thing. But it's kind of like the same thing when people say like, oh, well, you got to learn how to use a manual machine before you can use a CNC machine. Yeah. Um, but like what you do get comfortable with, with a torch is like heat's happening a lot slower, like, and, and things are moving slower. So you have more, which is sometimes a good thing and sometimes a bad thing, right? Like if you sit there on a joint and you're putting in like low heat for out, like too long, that's not a good thing. But with TIG, things are just, 
things are moving quicker. Like everything is happening at, at a speeded up process. And um, so it's, it's nice to start with the torch just because you can go a little bit slower. And especially if you're doing like a lug bike, you know, you can kind of like, it's like if you know how to sweat pipe, you can, you know, almost sweat a, a, a lug joint. So, yeah, I mean, I, I've recommended that to people for sure. Um, I do still think there's like, you know, you should do a lot of practice joints regardless of what you're yes. doing, like regardless of the process uh, before, like unless you're just building bikes for yourself or your friends that don't care, uh, like, you know, make sure that you're like getting those joints down and like getting them strong enough no matter who's riding the bike or whatever yeah. um, so that it's so that it's safe. So like it's kind of a time in thing. Like I do wish like looking back on it now, like I wish I would have put more hours earlier into TIG. Um, but yeah, I, I would agree to that to an, to an extent. Um, yeah. But you know, I, I'd also think like if you're going to go TIG, like, and that's the process you want to go to, like just jump in and just like, really all you got to do is just weld like way more practice joints, you know, yeah. than you are with like, you, you're going to suss out, and get like a capable joint quicker with uh brazing but like you know double down on the on the on the time in and and you could probably do a decent a decent tig joint i mean it's it is still amazing like what you can actually tig weld and it would probably hold up but doesn't mean that it's like yeah. you know the safe thing to do but uh, yeah. I, I like um, i like the way you put that a lot i think that's I would agree with that. And, and in fact, you know, there are some things that you like, like I have this sort of prepackaged response that I give, but like, yeah, you kind of reflect on that response over time. And, you know, not that I always even totally believe myself, not that I disbelieve myself either, I guess, but anyway, yeah, it's like, I, I think brazing is a little bit easier to learn. It may be easier to teach. I think the machinery is a little bit less expensive, I mean, TIG machines yeah. are terribly expensive now with like Everlast and other imports, but anyway, right, right. you know, like to buy like a Miller dynasty is a hell of a lot of money. Uh, but anyway, yeah, yeah it's like, uh, you know, they're, they're both hard in their own way and you need to get them up to snuff. And honestly, like, man, when I was younger, I was such a cheapskate and I would avoid, I would do so much to not spend $20. I was really good at being cheap. <laughs> right. And now as I get older, I just realize like, holy cow, life is expensive. Just everywhere you turn, you know, like, like a thousand dollars just vanishes gone, you know, like just so oh, many, yeah. oh, yeah. especially when you're running a business like I am. But anyhow, like TIG practice is not expensive. You can buy 4132 tubing for like, I don't know, like you could do a, a joint for like maybe a couple dollars or something, maybe less. You can miter right. the tubes, yep. which is good practice, whether you're doing it on a machine or by hand. And then, you know, just like batch miter them and then sit down and weld them and just do a lot of them until you feel really comfortable, like so that it's just like a super power. And it's a really relaxing thing. When I, once I had a bridge port, I would do that. I would just, I would miter a bunch of scrap, you know, tube segments. And then I put them into a Tupperware and like put the lid on so they wouldn't like uh, rust. And then I would, you know, when I would right. sit down, I didn't have to first do a bunch of chores. I could just do a bunch of practice, little T joints and stuff. I could do, you know, 20 minutes in a row or something. And like, if I did that pretty much every day, that was a really good way to like keep making progress all the time. If you were to do that every day for six months, you'd be a completely different welder than if you didn't. Yep. hundred percent, hundred percent. And like a lot of it is just, you know, it's the muscle memory and it's just doing it over and over again and setting yourself up to be able to do that is, uh, yeah, that's how you get good. No matter what, what, what you're doing. Um, 
But I will say that, you know, the nice thing about brazing, you know, is you do get a lot of experience on heat, like just how the heat is. Uh, and because it's happening at slower, at a slower rate, you get really, you get really, you get more comfortable with heat, if that makes sense. Like, I guess it's really hard to explain unless you really are a welder, you yeah. get, you know, you get more of that time in, but like, you know, what you're doing with TIG welding is doing the exact same thing, but it's happening in a very, very concentrated spot and it's happening. you got to go quicker because you're dealing with a lot hotter heat. Yeah. So, you know, several ways to, to cook, right? Yeah. One segment I did with Tom LaMarche was machine roundup. Uh, what kind of machine tools do you have in your shop these days? So we have, uh, we have a bridge port. We have, uh, like a clone bridge port. Um, we have, a, a small little harding, uh, horizontal mill that does like all of our main tube stuff. Um, we have a, it's like a, it's a Cadillac lathe. I can't remember. It's like an import machine as well. Oh, yeah. It's a, it's a copy of, um, from Morisiki, I think. Yeah. Yeah. Morisiki. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And I, I love that lathe. That lathe is awesome. It's like yeah. a fourteen twenty eight. It's like it. It's an animal, and it. It'll, you know, all manual machines, and then um, uh, welder synchro two hundred is what we what I weld with. And we used to have it. We had a Kearney and Trekker like horizontal mill that ended up having some issues. And then when we moved, it was like I just sold it because I had to get rid of it, and I didn't have space for it. Um, yeah. And it was pretty, pretty beat up. Uh, I was like hoping to like, it was like one of those things I got for super cheap and it was like, Oh, I'm going to like spend time. Like, you know, I've always adored like the Kearney and Trekker stuff. And I'm like, I'm going to spend time like fixing this up. And then, like you mm-hmm. get it. And you're like, no, no time for projects. Yep. And it's like really not, even if I got it working, it's not going to be like a money making game change machine. Yep. Um, so, but yeah, our shop is like pretty, like from a machine tool standpoint, pretty pretty lean um we have fixtures for each of them we just swap things in and out and like the process is pretty efficient like all the bikes we build are models so um we have a fairly standardized process like obviously there's customization that happens within that but like um you know we're not building a custom bike every single time so we have a you know each tool like all those tools are set up dedicated like nothing else really gets done on them unless we like need to make a tool or a part but oftentimes if we're making like a tool or a part, like I just ship it out and get it machined or um, send it to somebody else to make. Like, it's just, it's yeah. too disruptive. Now, nowadays the volume, like, you know, even when we, like I shrunk back, even when I was by myself, like I was still doing a lot of bikes um, by myself and, and it, it gets really just, you I mean, you know how it is like tear down a machine and set it up to do a different process. And yeah. especially when it's manual, like, is too tedious and too disruptive to the process. Like when we are like trying to get orders out the door. So we just don't, we don't do changeovers anymore. And it's one of the, like I said, it's one of those things where I wish I had like a, I wish I had like a little mini mill or Tormach like in the corner, like just to like make parts or um, an extra bridge port just to like, you know, be able to do a few things. And like, you know, obviously if we need to like screw, you know, drill a few holes, like we, we can do that. Like we have a process for that, but like, you know, we had to do some diacro dyes and like, I'm just like not going to set the mill up to do a diacro dye by hand. Like I'm just, yeah, I'd rather yep. just model the part and have it made. It just yep. doesn't make any, doesn't make any sense. As much as I'd love to do it and like come in mm. on like, I got, we, I, I now have three kids and a wife. So <laughs> like my time, my free time, like on the weekends is not like 
oh, I, I, I rarely get an extra like eight hours to go make like a, a, a bending yep. die. So, um, and it's actually a good thing because it makes me be like, you know, um, yeah, it makes me be really efficient with the time that I have. Um, and, uh, it keeps me away from like getting into messes that I probably shouldn't be getting myself into, but yeah. Yeah, those those are machines, and we do have a whole. You know, we paint everything in house, so we have a whole paint facility as well. So we got paint booth, tons of paint. You know, lots of different paint guns. Um, yeah, we spray mostly like spray mostly PPG, but um, you know, we got Iwata paint guns. And like, I know those aren't machine tools, but they're tools nonetheless, and they're yeah. expensive tools. So we, uh, yeah, we got all that stuff as well. Um, yeah, and the paint is actually a pretty big part of your brand because uh, I think I've heard you say, or it's on your web copy, or something about how, you know, the, you know, you, know, you guys are almost known more for your paint work than your bikes, or I forget how I heard you phrase it, but like, you know, just really yeah. acknowledging that you know that's so important to your customers, and you know that it's important to do well, and the way that you emphasized the lead time sort of conundrum because you know, for us, the, it takes us a certain amount of time to get material in. We can usually turn it around through the machines pretty damn fast if we're motivated. But then, uh, a lot of times, you know, most of the aluminum parts, which is most of what we do needs to get anodized and we right. can get black anodized done in town. That's bad enough. But if we need the green color, we got to ship it. And so, you know, you're like, you're trying to build up enough stuff to make it worth shipping and make it worth the lot minimum. And then you got to wait uh, almost two weeks or so a lot of times to get it back again. And then you maybe need to laser etch it and anything you can do to, to save the lead time is huge. Whereas for instance, at the heyday of those top caps, we would get in a stick. I would, or so like before 5 PM the day prior, I would, order some bronze from McMaster car. It would show up at like 10 AM the next day. We would have finished parts like an hour or so later. And then, you know, by the end of the day, we could have, we could have turned, you know, a bar of material into like as many as a couple hundred of these top caps and just that flexibility, because in the course of a month, I had turned this like curiosity of an idea into like half of our business. Whereas with right. something like an aluminum part, where you need to first get the material in and you need to run it through the machine and then anodize, you'd only be able to iterate and like play with your idea like once or twice in the span of a month. And that, that time is absolutely critical to stuff like that. Yeah. It's, it's, I don't, I don't know how I'd be able to operate without it in house. Um, like I couldn't, couldn't go back to like, it would be so hard for me to go back. Like the business model would just change drastically if I had to send out for finishing and like, you know, there's talented finishers that like, I'm sure I could build the reputation with that would give me like priority and all those other things. But like at the end of the day, like, like we can literally build a bike from like, if you, I mean, I could probably, if I, as long as I had the material to build the frame in house, we could build a bike in a day, like, and ship, like almost ship it. Like we probably wow. wouldn't want to ship it because we'd want to give the paint some time to cure. But yeah. like we could, like no problem. Well, um, except for the Shimano stuff that are, right? The, the components are. Right, right, yeah, except for the component parts. Like I, like I said, like if we had a build kit on the shelf um, and like, you know, we could build the wheels if we needed to, but let's like, say we had all the components in house. Like we could, we could, what we make, the frame, we could do in a day and, you just couldn't do like you just couldn't do that otherwise and and that's not we don't 
schedule it that way. Typically we like schedule, like we have a week's worth of production that flows into paint. Mm-hmm. It's typically how we do it because paint does have some downtime. So like, and again, I'm saying like we could probably ship it in a day if it's like a basic paint scheme, like if it's a single color base, with like a single color decal. But if we had to do any kind of complex artwork, sometimes that takes days because we have cure cycles in between. But even with that, like we wouldn't be able to do the bikes that we do affordably if we did them somewhere else. Like we, you know, doing, we, we can just control so much of the process by finishing it in house. And like, I would argue to say that, you know, almost 50% of what the customer is buying is the finish as well. And I, and I knew that early on just because I had worked in a bike shop for so long and sold so many bikes. Like I understood how important color was to the consumer. Yeah. Um, and, you know, especially as we do more road and gravel stuff, you know, there's a bit of the coffee shop vibe to what we do. And so a lot of it is like, car club kind of mentality where it's guys like to show their bikes off to their friends. And like, there's a bit of this like competition amongst people like our clientele that do that. And I, you know, and I, I've probably sacrificed, you know, like I've said, I've wanted to get more into CNC stuff. Like I've probably sacrificed that in, in exchange for the paint stuff and dived more into the design side on paint than pursuing other aspects of it. But I felt like it was more of a critical point like you know i've always had paragon you know so it's like why have i ever had to like worry about frame parts you know like paragon's always got stuff in stock most of the time you know and like mark's mark and donna are amazing you know the business that they run so like that was never a constraint for me but finishing was yep absolutely and so and i just feel like the creativity like the kind of open-ended creativity side of it is like much more like open-ended on the paint side so it's like I get to use like my engineering fabricator brain and then we get to like step in and like use like the other side of our brain and do like kind of creative color art work on that end and we probably haven't even exercised like as much as we could in that department and we're trying to change that kind of going forward but yeah I mean I, I would say that for our customers paint's a huge a huge part of it and like that process in itself like guiding a customer through the finish process is is difficult it's as difficult as guiding them through a, a you know the frame building process like it's uh you got to have your process really dialed in to make it an enjoyable experience otherwise it can be really unenjoyable um and like james james is our james bellery is our painter and, and james uh you know i hired james on like not even knowing how to uh he'd be another fun interview probably for you but uh you know, I hired him on not even know how to paint and uh he learned from Carl at Vicious and uh he I mean he's so he's super so talented and you know we wouldn't be where we are today without his his help and uh he really compliments. I mean he's as much as part of Stinner as like, you know, I am and he's really he's really helped us accelerate that department and he's he's he has a art background and graphic design background and um and he, he has bike industry experience. So he, he had a really good intersection of all, a lot of skill sets. And he just had to figure out how to pull the, pull the paint gun trigger. And yeah. Um, yeah. So yeah, we want a full, full, full paint shop and a uh, shameless plug. We do, we started, we started accepting outside work now to kind of under like a sister brand. We, it's called Aether, but we're doing um, outside work as well so if you have a non-stinner frame that wants to get painted we uh we are accepting work yeah i um, think through that avenue 
I think there's a lot of people who desire to to like start a frame building shop or a frame building brand even. And um, it seems like my sense of it is that there's always been kind of a shortage of excellent painters and especially, you know, like being able to get it turned around quickly and stuff. I, I always got powder coat the one time I was really trying to make a more impressive, more finished looking bike. And I sent it to Rudy and uh, yeah, it turned out awesome, but you know, I had to ship it all the way to Portland and I, uh, you know, I think for a fade paint job bike, it was like 850 bucks by the time we shipped it to and from. And I think I had to wait six weeks or something. And these were way pre COVID times. I'm sure it's more expensive and slower now just because the, the world right. we live in today. And, uh, and you know, I, I guess I was, that was my main focus was frame building stuff, but I, that wasn't customer work. It wasn't a deadline for a trade show. That was just, I was antsy to get it. Right. And so, yeah, that's, right. that's, that's tough. And, uh, yeah, the world I live in now, like, man, if I could do my own anodizing on aluminum in a practical way, you know, I would, I would do it tomorrow, but it's just, there's so much cost and complication. And meanwhile, if you can like kind of manage the relationship with your anodizer, they do it so ridiculously cheap for what it is that it's like, you, you know, you just have to put on your manager hat and like learn how to make that relationship work. <laughs> and they typically do really good work and like the turnaround time's not bad, but yeah, it's like, I just, I just hate vendors and like sub, you know, subcontractors sending stuff out. It's just so, so much of like the stress and the energy that you put into the business goes into those sorts of things. And when you have good team members that work with you, uh, it's, it's great. It's a joy. Yeah, you know, and, and like, I think we just had a comment, like we, we had all like, I agree completely with you, like, you probably don't, you don't want to get into anodizing your own parts. And like, if we had a pro if like our finished process was less expensive, and more, we had more options, as far as like vendors go, and it was more simplified, like, and it was standardized, like, I probably wouldn't be doing it in house. But because like, the visual effect of what we're giving, like, like, at the end of the day, like, you can't see geometry, I mean, you can see geometry, but you know what I mean? Like you can't see angles yeah. and you can't see all this like engineering and like you can see it to a little bit, to a degree. Like we all add our own little flair onto like making our own bikes. But uh, the first thing they see is the paint. And like we were giving up a lot of that control to somebody else that we were paying a lot of money for, like a lot of money for. Yep. And with, with, with non, with like not, predictable lead times, like wildly unpredictable lead times. So it was like a recipe to be like, there was like, there's no way you could grow this without having this in control. So that's why we chose to to bring it in house. But like, talk to, like if you listen to Carl Strong, like he would be the first person to tell you, like, if you want to keep it small and you want to keep it easy, like don't bring paint in the house, like leave it up to somebody else. Um, yeah. But then you have you have a full time job managing a vendor, so <laughs> um, yeah. Which I saw, I guess I still have a full time job managing the process, but uh, I'm just, I guess I'm a control freak, and I need to control that process. So. Yeah, and I mean, to some degree, it's like you know, that's like the for me, I'm always trying to like let go a little bit you know now that i have an employee and 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 all that like trust that other people like hire the right people and trust them and like you know tr you know like let let someone else live or die by their sorts of you know give them the chance to succeed or fail because if you just control it all the time you know like nothing will ever change and you'll just stress yourself out and you, the, you know you're not developing your employee and whatever but you know being a control freak sometimes does lead in a positive direction because it means that, you know, the product is what you wanted it to be, but it's, it's a tough balance to, to try and maintain. 
Absolutely. Absolutely. Give me more questions on your uh, well, it's, I know you're a family man. I don't want to keep you all night. I don't have a whole lot more. We didn't really talk about titanium. I know you do some. I don't know how much of your product line or how much of your sales is titanium or what that learning curve was like. Or Right? You do titanium. I'm not wrong about that, am I? Yeah. No, 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 no. Yeah, we do. We do tie. We brought tie in. We, like, I started to do tie. I had been, pra- again, practicing for many years before we released it out into the wild. But uh uh, I practiced TIG for a long time, and then um, we started doing that in 2015, and uh, probably over 50% of our business is Thai now. Um, yeah. Like, I was doing the math the other day when I was just looking at current orders, um, and current orders, we have more Thai bikes than we do steel bikes, and I, it seems to be trending that way. You know, we've, we have more dealers that we work with now. We're not only direct. So that's been like a change in the business model and that, uh, I, you know, more dealers are ordering tie. And I think it's, it's an easy sell, not that you're trying to sell it because at the end of the day, we make about the same, like regardless of material, but, um, for like hours in and the cost of materials and all that fun stuff. But, uh, you know, that that the tie bikes are just, you know, does you just don't have some of the nuances that steel has, rust and um, you know, those things. Um Yeah. And I, I honestly like from a fab, from a fabrication standpoint, I, I love working with tie, so I probably comes out in how I talk about it. Yeah. Uh do you do full paint over that or do you do any anodizing or bead blast or how do you guys finish those usually? So we're doing, we're like getting our tie. We've done tie anodizing in the past, but we haven't spent a lot of time on it. So we do offer it, but we're trying to like dial our process in more as we've gotten more and more requests for it. Yeah. Um, so more often than not, we paint and like we, we, we can do a raw finish I and mean, we'll be blasted and send it out. But uh, more often than not, because we are known for our paint, we get a combo. So, you know, I think the last like five bikes were like, some exposed tie with paint on it. I um, love that. So like adding, yeah. So adding some customization and like, but still, still exposing a lot of the raw material. I think a lot of people think that's like sacrilege or something, but I love it. I mean, there's a lot of ways to do it. I love it when it looks like, uh, you know, like an old, like Eddie Merck's frame or something with like the Chrome stays, you know, like when it's sort of that like vintage modern kind of look, I yep. think is cool. Or There's a lot of cool things you can do with it. Yeah, we're going to, I've been saying this for a while, but in the fall, when we started making titanium top caps, we, we, uh, I, I just basically, I, I told my employee, Zach, I said, like, figure out anodizing for these, you know, watch YouTube videos, ask around, figure it out. And he did. And there's, uh, you know, different solutions and heating them to different temperatures. And it's a little bit different because those ones you can dunk them. Uh, but we have like, right. a, we have a solution called multi etch, which I don't know if everybody knows about that. So the plan was partially, we wanted to learn this so that we could be a resource to other titanium frame builders. Cause you know, like wouldn't, you know, that, that's a, it's, it's a cool way for me to be of value and of service to the people that I want to sell my tools to. And it's just cool. And I wanted to make some pretty looking stuff. So we'll do that at some point where, um, if there's a possibility that you don't already know that, then let me know and I'll, I'll put you in contact with my employee. He could maybe give you a pointer, but anyway, uh, yeah, yeah. it's, it's a lot of fun playing with that stuff. And the, um, the heat in the bath, like we use like a, like a double boiler basically with a crock pot as the heating element, but like the heat for okay. the, for the etch really makes a difference. And then using this, this brand name is called multi etch and like the solutions that you use, 
uh, really make a big difference to the way it responds to voltage. Uh, and then also it's funny, like you'll have like a finished top cap that's just raw with some anodizing on it. But like if it, if you just smudge it with your fingers, it looks completely different than if you like clean and wash it with soap or if you wipe it with furniture polish, it gives like a totally different sheen. I don't know if you see that much with what you do. Yeah, that's cool. No, I mean, we've played around with it a little bit with the tie stuff, but like, you know, we, I mean, that's the fun part about the finish side of things. And like, again, like the size of, of your brain that you get to use, that's not like numbers and yeah. um, coordinates. Like, you know, you get to like, be like, Oh wow. If I just touch this, it changes, you know? And like, that's the fun stuff with paint even that we do. And we, we do a lot of like clean lines, crisp edges, that kind of stuff. But, uh, it's like the fun, like you get to experiment with a lot of stuff, you know, like you, I'm sure you've seen like, the marbling that like, you know, the marbling technique on like, that's a popular finish right now, where you just like yeah. literally take a plastic baggie and you're just like dabbing it across the frame. Um, yeah. But yeah, on the tie, the tie stuff. Yeah. We've seen that like you can, you can manipulate the finishes a lot of different ways for us. What's really hard. And like, we've gotten our process down pretty good, but it's, it's, you know, with paint, we can be really controlled because yeah. well, for the most part, we can be really controlled with tie Anno, like, we want that process to be as controllable because our process, like the way we sell it and we, we sell our finishes, like we like to be somewhat confident. We've found that like, if we go into a finish process where we don't know what the final outcome is going to be, we either need to be like completely transparent with the customer that we're venturing down like an area that we have no idea how this is going to end up. <laughs> yeah. um, or, or like if it's an area that they don't feel comfortable, they have a chance to like go back and go do something else. Because, um, again, it's like a very visual thing and like we want to yep. make sure. And like with the Thai Anno stuff, like the stuff that we're experimenting with, we, we've gotten it down pretty darn good. Um, but just like our, I'm like a little bit of a perfectionist. Like I like to have this stuff like completely buttoned up before I like can guarantee it to a customer. Yeah. Um, but yeah, no, I love hearing stuff like that. Like, you know, um, heating the bath like we knew we knew about that but it sounds like you guys are getting some like really decent heat in there to get some consistent results you um, can you can buy a temperature controller for 20 bucks or something and basically it's got its own thermostat probe and it's digitally programmable for a temperature window just like you know the thermostat in your house and then it is like a power receptacle for the crock pot so like it will keep the the water in the crock pot you know, boiler thing between uh, 140, oh, wow. and 140 and 150 or something like that. And you can tell, like, like if you, if you rush into it and it's like, ah, oh, it's like 145 or, or whatever, you know, it's like, oh, it's getting close to the right temperature. It's like, it, it's not the same, like the way that it, the, I think, right. the, I think the parts kind of fizz in the solution or I don't, I don't know. I don't typically do the anodize. I've empowered my employee to like, <laughs> you know, really kick ass with that. And then, and then, you know, I check in with him and, but anyway, yeah. And now I want to make, I want to make a sales pitch to you and I don't care if you don't take me up on this, but also on the platform, maybe <laughs> other people are listening with the top caps that we make in titanium. We have done some runs of those for other frame builders. Uh, we did some for market Prova cycles. We did some for Northern frameworks uh, and a handful of others. And the cool thing about the top caps is they look really, they're like cosmetic and they're front and center on the bike and you see them. And so it's kind of cool if you have a bike shop or if you have a frame building business or whatever to put that cap on the top of the bike. And uh, so anyway, I don't know if that fits what you're into or if you want some, uh, we can talk about that later, but also for anyone who's listening, uh, we're happy to do that. Uh, typically we keep top caps that are turned and done on the lathe in the shop 
And so we've been able to ship like same day for new customers fairly often for like, you know, a reasonable size run. It's a $115 setup fee to like figure out how we want to do the engraving and those emails and stuff. And then it's for titanium ones, it's $20 a piece. And for bronze ones, it's $13 a piece. So, you know, like to imagine like you have a brand and you send me an email. And as soon as like three or four days later, you have a bunch of them in your hands and you can throw them on your bikes. I think that's a pretty cool thing that we can offer to people. So even if you you, Aaron, don't want to take me up on that. I wanted to make the plug for everybody else. No, I love it. I love that idea. Uh, we'll definitely, definitely take you up on that. Um, we, whatever we got to do, we can <laughs> chat after this. And, uh, yeah, there you go. Boom. That's how you make the money. That's how you make um, the money. No, that's a great. I, lo- I love that. I mean, also, I mean, just to be like, to bring it all around circle, like the conversation we just had. I mean, what makes that really attractive is the fact that I can like, once we set it up and do it, like, it seems like I could probably just email you and get, and get to do a reorder and I don't exactly. have to wait, you know, like yep. three weeks or four weeks exactly. and like, so be able to replenish our stock and keep that, keep that going. Yeah. Make yeah. master car of top caps. Exactly. Now I'll say two <laughs> things about that. I'll say the one thing is, uh, so the $115 setup fee, you know, it's like once we have the program and the file, you could just send me an email and say like, I want 20 more and then bam, you know, we'll ship them probably the same day. We haven't been selling as many top caps lately, so I only have so much material on hand, but like generally we have like a sure. hundred or more top caps. But the other thing I would say about that is that, uh, <laughs> so we had some people who we made them for and they would sell them and not everybody took us up on this, but what I was trying to push, and I think this is kind of an interesting business proposition is that like when you get a new product in like, you know, your stickers or your t-shirts, which these sort of are for people like, you know, with your brand name, it's like a t-shirt kind of. And so anyway, you know, you get one in and you take a picture and you post it to Instagram and your website, your email following, whatever. And then you tell them like, there's a limited quantity and then they buy them and the limited nature of it, right. That's like part of the draws like, Oh, I better get one before they run out. And what I've offered to do to people, maybe this is slightly unethical as I've said, you know, like I can take a good photo of a sample size of one and then you can do a drop and sell as many as you want to. And you can tell people that it's a pre-order or I don't care. You can tell them that it's a sale of a limit. I don't care how you do it, but we can turn those around and make you up to you know, a hundred pieces or whatever within 24 hours and ship them. And so anyway, uh, it's cool to like, it's like, <laughs> it's kind of a trick, you know, it's like you, you offer somebody yeah, the ability yeah, totally. to sell something because we can actually manufacture it that quickly and ship it that quickly. And so it's sort of unrelated to the other discussion, but, but it is a little bit related to paint. It's like when you can, or, or anodizing would be for me, when you can turn something around quickly, it like, um, it, it sort of collapses in on itself. One of the biggest constraints in business, which is just that like, if you have to wait for something, then it means in the meantime, you have to do something else to make you money. And uh, yeah, it's, it's like a superpower when stuff just moves quickly. Yep. No, hundred percent. And uh, I, I would completely agree with that. Um, reducing, reducing lead times and wait time is, uh, is a really good, um, really good way to change how your business operates. Yeah. Uh, oh, um, one more thing also that I forgot to say earlier is just, uh, it's, it's an interesting situation that you were talking about being in when you have like X a number of orders in front of you and you can see that sort of like 
you almost imagine it like you're walking down the sidewalk and there's like a little pile of money here and a little pile of money ahead of that and a little pile of money a little further forward. And it's just like, right. you know, you can just imagine like starting to jog or starting to run or starting to sprint. You know, it's like they're already waiting for you. It's like that's that's not a phenomenon that I've ever had. We 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 keep an inventory and then people buy it. And so that's a like I can see how that would be incredibly tempting to hire in order to get there sooner. And not just for your own pocketbook, if you thought it was going to make you more money, but also so that your customers didn't have to be sitting there holding their cash, you know? Yeah. And that was our plan. You know, like I was like, how can, how low can we get the feed time? And that was what was attracting a lot of people early on. Um, what where we were inefficient is we didn't, I didn't have, we, we were hiring, we had too many people on for what we were making and at the price point we were making it at. Yeah. Um, I don't think the, the goal is not unobtainable. Um, it's just how you, how you get there. Um, yeah. and, uh, you know, like with anything, it just takes being diligent and, uh, you know, and doing the work. So yep. we still think we can, we'd like to get our lead times down and we, we feel like 12 weeks is in, we're a little longer than that right now, but we like to be in around 12 weeks and we feel like it's enough time for the customer to make enough decisions. Cause there's with a custom bike, there's still a decision process and that doesn't happen like instantaneously. Yeah. Um, and so we like to be in the 12 week range. I mean, and that's right now with frames, we, we are keeping a limited inventory of group sets as we can get them. Um, mm-hmm. But uh, we like to have a fairly quick lead time turnaround because at the end of the day, you know, seasons change and like, you know, <laughs> what you're buying, the bike that somebody may be buying, you know, as much as I want the person that's buying a bike from us it, for it to be their like forever bike and their one collector bike kind of thing. It's not the reality. You know, it's like some people are buying a gravel bike because they want to ride it this fall. Yep. And uh, if fall turns to winter and turns to spring, they're back riding their road bike and they may not be as interested in the gravel bike. So the experience is just completely changed. Yep. Um, and we, we, we're, we're trying to, you know, I've always tried to be in front of that and, and, and provide a better, better experience. So, yeah. yeah well, I'll try and always try and <laughs> I think that's the spirit. <laughs> Thanks so much for being on my yeah. show. You got it, Joe. Thanks for having me and uh, good luck with everything out there. Yeah. See you next time.